0: No, I can't talk about Supposing it. Supposing it had been your baby, would I still have been I a whore? I said whole? I can't talk about it. Well, what can't you talk about? That you weren't the first? No. No, it's nothing as simple as that. Well, what is it then? Tell me. Do you think I've changed or something just because you found out more about me? No. Well, let's leave it, shall we? I found out more about you too, lying in the hospital waiting for you to come. I found out lots of things I didn't know, but I don't mind. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah, okay.
1: Well, let's leave it at that. I mind and you don't mind, so let's leave it, shall Why we? Why should I
0: leave it? What does leave it mean? What sort of reason is that?
2: Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only received one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I am joined once again by Will Steele to discuss Leslie Caron's Oscar-nominated performance in the 1963 film The L-Shaped Room. Will, good to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me back, Gordon. Yeah, it is wonderful to be
3: back. I've been on Sam Metzler's podcast since, and I feel like I'm maybe a bit more experienced. So, here's hoping I'm not as uh, bumbly as last time.
2: Oh, you were great last time. It was a, it was oh. a fun. Uh, go ch- go check out the uh, Little Voice episode that we did a couple a couple months ago. Uh, so it was a fun one. Uh, it was well,
3: very fun. Yeah, thank you. And it was my first. It was my first podcast. So now I feel. Hell. Bit more seasoned and ready to go very excited to talk about this
2: one right on so uh, tell me a little bit about why you picked this movie to be your uh, your return
3: okay so there's there's two and i feel like i've got to start with the sentimental one which was because it reminds me of my nana um so my nana is still alive it's not like a sentimental sad story um she is one of the most important people in my life and i think this film just reminds me of her for a few reasons the first being, we watched it together probably a few years ago. Um, but she was born the same year as Leslie Caron. Um, and so she's 1991 this year. I hope she doesn't mind me saying that. But, you know, um, we watched this together. And I think I see it through her eyes when I watch films of her, which I do quite a lot. And I think she really does hold a candle for the past, you know, as a lot of older people do. And I think watching films with her like this, with her, can, you know, I don't know, imbue it with a sentimentality that I I wouldn't normally have. But I really do have for this film Um, and especially films of this genre, the sort of British new wave, which is the other reason why I picked it. Um, This period of history, of cinematic history, is just one that I find very interesting. And um, I'm actually going to study a master's degree in film studies. This September and I'm hoping to sort of delve into this era in academic, academic academia yeah. uh, a little bit so yeah I was it was a sentimental and uh, uh, an interest that I wanted to delve into and discuss in conjunction with the Oscars as well which I also love so yeah that's my ramble
2: that's perfect that is a, as good a reason as any to talk about this movie and it, it's a what a movie to talk about I, I hadn't seen this before Uh, obviously you have, because I I don't remember if this was something that you mentioned during the last episode or not, but you've seen every Oscar-nominated performance. Is that correct? It
3: is correct. Yeah, I
2: think I may have dropped that in uh, last time. But yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: The trouble is, though, and I think this will come up as we do this episode, uh, maybe when talking about the other films of this year, a lot of them I have really just forgotten. So it is quite um, something if something in a film stands out. And when you kindly offered to have me back, and gave me the list. This sprang out, and I was like, right, I know I like that film, but as it came time, you were like, right, we've got to do The L-Shaped Room. I was like, yeah, why did I pick that film? Um, But I can say, upon re-watching it, I hope you found the same, it is lovely. It's a lovely, lovely film.
2: It is, yes. I I, I greatly enjoyed, I enjoyed in the sense that, like, it's a well-made film. There's a lot of things about it to appreciate. Not necessarily that it's the most upbeat movie. Uh, I, I, I find yeah. myself maybe using that turn of phrase a bit too much when I'm talking about movies about uh, pretty heavy topics and serious topics. But you know, I, I, I enjoyed this film as a film. And yeah. a, a, lot that, a lot of that is because of Leslie Caron and her, her performance at the center that really grounds the entire story. The, entire, like, the entirety of the film is entirely about her. Mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, I, I think that she does a lot of work to make the movie work as well as it does. Yeah. So I'm excited to get into her. Uh, so we are talking about The L-Shaped Room from 1962 slash 63, different uh, release dates depending on what country you're coming from, written and directed by Brian Forbes, based on the 1960 novel by Lynn Reed Banks of the same title, starring Leslie Caron, Tom Bell, Brock Peters, uh, Avis Bonnage, Cicely Courtenage, Bernard Lee, Patricia Phoenix, Emmalyn Williams, Nanette Newman, a bunch of other people in relatively small roles. It's mostly those first three are like the the main people that we're following. Uh, but even then, it's mostly just Leslie Caron. Uh, it yeah. premiered November 20th, 1962 in the United Kingdom and then opened May 23rd, 1963 in the United States. Wow, so, so uh, almost
3: a year afterwards.
2: Yeah, yeah, just uh, just about wow. half a year. Uh, I, I don't know why that is. Sometimes that just happens. Uh, And uh, that's why we're talking about the Oscars of 1963 and not of 1962, because uh, they go by U.S. release dates. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Which
3: isn't super common to see this when you look at acting nominees, right? Yeah. Yeah. It tends to happen with foreign films, say, like, I always think of Battle of Algiers getting the foreign picture nomination in 66 and then the director nomination in 68, which is the biggest disparity. But with acting... I suppose, and as time goes on, as distribution gets a bit more universal, um, you don't tend to have a, a performance from a film the year prior being nominated for the subsequent year.
2: Yeah, and usually when it is, it's something like like a Sexy Beast, which I've covered before. I think got a two thousand release in the UK mm-hmm. and then a US qualifying release in two thousand one. Weirdly, I think also Beginners, although that might have been just a festival thing. Like it got festival releases in twenty ten, and then played open uh, like widely in uh, twenty eleven. That's that's what you see more of nowadays it's festival yeah. runs versus uh, wide release when it comes to year discrepancies but yeah it doesn't happen all that often where uh it'll contend in two different years like I think this was BAFTA eligible in 1962 which again especially in this time you usually see it the other way around where American releases yeah. get delayed releases uh in, in the UK so they get BAFTA uh a year later and in this case it's a year early so that, yeah, that'll be a fun thing i
3: think for leslie carron although we can get onto this later actually and i hadn't thought of this till now she might not have fared that well if this had been nominated in the year it released in the uk
2: yeah yeah that that it's a much i mean talk about two wildly different races for best actress like 62 is a lot of people all contending like that you have betty davis and what happened to baby jane and Anne Bancroft in The Miracle Worker and Katherine Hepburn in Long Day's Journey into Night, previous episode. Go check that one out, too. Um, but then this year, we'll we'll talk about it, but this is a very strange year for Best Actors at yeah. the Oscars, uh, uh, right down to the ultimate winner. Uh, but before we get into any of that, let's talk about the performance we're talking about. Let's talk about Leslie Caron as Jane Fosset, uh, F-O-S-S-E-T, as, the, as the, uh, some character. I don't remember why... Th- I don't know why that stuck out to me as something that uh, just the way that he, some like doctor just in passing spells her name out like that, but that stood out to me. I don't know why, but uh, anyway, yeah. So what are your first thoughts on this performance that she gives here? What what stands Um, out to you first? So I think it's interesting that you said that she is sort of
3: her performance kind of is the film because that's what reviews at the time said. You know, this is a fairly standard story in a not exceptionally made film, but she imbues it with such charm and depth. Maybe charm might be the wrong word, but depth. I mean, she's char- she's definitely charming.
2: Yeah. I mean, she's always been a charming performer. Like, throughout yeah. her American in Paris is uh, all about how charming she is, basically. Like, that's yeah. her, that's her that's at least that's her part of the movie is that all these men are fighting over her because she's just so damn charming. And
3: is it Lily from 1953? Is that what it's called?
2: Yeah, I haven't seen that Lily. one, but that's her other nomination as the little girl with the puppets or something. Something. Yeah, like that.
3: again, I've seen it. I remember Miguel Ferrer, I think, or one of the Ferrers is in it. Who was married to Audrey Hepburn. And yeah, I don't, I remember it being very twee and just thinking, oh, I think I got a director nomination or a Best Probably, probably It did quite well. Like yeah. It's not eligible for your podcast and I'm glad this is the one that is, you know? Yes, um, yeah. But yeah, I think her in this, she is very good. And I hadn't remembered, the, the parts of the film I remembered weren't her specifically, they were certain scenes she was in, or the, the feeling it gave me, but not her. And she was very, very good and very lovable. I think it, it maybe suffers from some of the trappings of older films that maybe now if we come to it as a modern audience, when you, want, when you hear the synopsis, so this is a story about um, uh, a young woman who gets pregnant. Um, she's kicked out, I think, by her parents or she leaves home to hide it. Um, and then she goes to a uh, just a house, rents a room, so that she can basically decide what to do with the baby. So it, it's quite you know, a gritty, dramatic plot. Um, and I think nowadays, if this was made, you'd expect a lot of tears, a lot of very, very overwrought dramatic scenes to really emphasize the tragedy of the situation. But she, she catches it in those smaller moments, like when she views the room at the start, she you know she's left alone and she turns around there's a tear running down her face it's not you know burst into tears now it's not really really showy it's quite internal and i think that's that's commendable um but yeah i think it's interesting uh that in this very year she was nominated against natalie wood for a very similar a film with a similar premise you know and i can't again i'm not really showing my best side but i can't really remember that film particularly well but i think natalie Wood did something similar where they're giving these very um sort of they're channeling this inner turmoil into very suppressed contained emotions that just seep to the surface now and again and they're more brought out by other people and when they let themselves fall in love with others it comes out that way.
2: Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, having seen that movie, for, like I, before this, before preparing for this episode, the only movie in this race that I had seen is Hud, and I ended up, mm-hmm. I didn't get a, a chance to watch Irma La Deuce just because that's two and a half hours and, uh, oh. mm-hmm. uh, and I, I had a lot going on. But I, d- I did get around to the other two. And having watched uh, Love with a Proper Stranger before this one, I, I definitely uh, saw a lot of those similarities in you know, also, that's also about a, a young pregnant woman deciding whether or not she wants to keep the baby and what's uh, going to go. They both even go have a scene where they're talking about how the other man is willing to get married to her to uh, raise the baby, but she doesn't want to.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I, th- I thought that was an interesting parallel between those. But yeah, no. Uh, and that's not to say that they're giving similar performances either. Like Natalie Wood has more... Uh, like, she's a much more, um, I don't know, n- not uh, outspoken character, but she, mm-hmm. she pushes back against the, the other characters, I think, a little bit more. She's much more openly independent, whereas uh, uh, Jane in this movie is, you know, she very quickly falls in with uh, Toby and Johnny and just as, as, for, as friendships even before anything romantic happens there. Uh, like she she has this support network of people in this house, which I really appreciated and we 'll talk about that yeah. when we talk about the rest of the movie uh but there's one moment that I wrote down mm-hmm. where where she 's going to visit this doctor uh, yes. and uh he's a very a very you know uh snarky sort of up his own ass mm-hmm. uh, doctor that is bas he basically says well you're single and not wanting to get married, so either like your two options are get married or have an abortion uh and she you know at at the end of the scene is like i came in here not knowing what i wanted to do but because you are such an asshole to me i decided i'm going to keep this baby because you didn't even stop to ask me if i wanted to keep it like uh, yeah and, and that's a really great scene but there's a point in that before she's even made that decision and you can see there's some points where it focuses just on her and you can see the look in her face that like this is the point where she 's deciding to keep this baby just because this guy 's such an asshole, but there 's mm-hmm. a point where he says that you know uh, it 's not a very wise choice to uh, to to go through with this and she says i don 't have any choice and he says uh, that 's mm-hmm. a bit of an overstatement, and she just sort of pauses and looks down and just very quietly says again i don 't have any choice and it, it, like mm. she 's saying the exact same thing twice. But they both have wildly different connotations to like she, does she actually have a choice? what What choice is she saying she doesn't have? And she's saying all that with very little uh, actual dialogue. And I think that, that that really speaks to what you're saying about her. She's not, you know, having these big emotional outbursts to get across the uh, the, the pain that she's going through and the uncertainty that she's faced with. Like she gets a lot of that out in, these very, very subtle moments, but that uh, that are obvious, but not not as a pejorative. Like it is obvious mm-hmm. that this is an emotional moment, but she's not overacting it. And I really liked yeah. that decision.
3: Yeah, and I wonder whether it because I, from what I've read, I, I watched an interview of her doing a panel for BFI and some other quotes. I think I read from Inside Oscar that she came to England to make this film because she felt trapped in a stereotype that she'd been fulfilling in MGM. I think she had a contract with MGM. And so from American in Paris, which I think is her first film, she is in films like Lily and Gigi and Fanny. And they're all ones where she's really epitomizing youth and purity. Um, And she wanted to break from that and prove that she wasn't just a dancer. She didn't want to be known as a dancer from the American in Paris days and she didn't want to be known as this innocent childlike character so coming and doing this you know but she doesn't she doesn't really overemphasize the ad, more adult themes she still lets them she almost embodies that maturity by allowing silence and interiority to lead rather than screaming and shouting and playing the character with more edge, she has the sort of, you know, knowledge to play it subtly, which is incredibly mature. And I think she may have, I suppose she was 31 when the film came out. So, yeah, I think it is an incredibly mature part for her. And that makes the performance um, worthy of the Oscar nomination and very compelling.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of moments where I was, you know, she's she's still like 27, the character at least is. Yeah. And so she is surrounded by these people that have a bit more, you know, world weariness, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. She's also, and this is different from the book. In the book, she's playing a British character, but obviously Leslie Crone is French, and she's playing the character as a French woman living, uh, we don't know how long she's been living in Britain, but, you know, mm-hmm. long enough that she has a complete grasp of the language and her yeah. accent is almost completely gone. But... Uh, so, so, like, she definitely is, like, you feel that she is a little bit um, less attuned to this particular culture. Mm-hmm. And so you get every once in a while a moment where she not only acts, but, like, behaves as, as the most mature character. Uh, that really sort of takes you back to the point where she meets up with uh, the father of her child. Mm -hmm. Uh, she reconnects with him uh, and they go out to dinner with is it his parents who's the old couple that they're sitting with they don't i didn't i didn't even notice this i now you're saying it i didn't even know they were with anyone were they just
3: at a table with other people
2: they never really say who these other two people are that it keeps every once in a while cutting back to across the, the table from them they could just be complete strangers but throughout all this like He keeps trying to, like, he's talking down to her. He's kind of infantilizing Mm. her of like, oh, I'm so sorry that I I put you through all that. Like, he's he's acting as if she doesn't have any agency um, within her pregnancy and all this stuff. And asking why she, you know, agreed to sleep with him. And uh, she's very, very calm and very, you know, matter of fact about like, well it was all you ever talked about with me is how much you wanted to sleep with me. And at a certain mm-hmm. point she says, uh, the, the quote is my, my virginity was becoming very cumbersome, which mm-hmm. I, I liked the way that like, she speaks very eloquently throughout all, all this. And, uh, she's like, basically, I just slept with you to shut you up. And then it turns out I got pregnant and I didn't want you to be in my life. Basically. I just, so I, I left. And then at the end of that scene, as she's leaving the restaurant, he says, uh, I'm still at the same address if you ever want to find me or whatever you, like, I, here, this is where I am, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, I, I, I know where you are. I know, I know where mm. I can find you. Like, it's not that, like, he's the one that reaches out to her to take her out to dinner and talk things over. But it's not that he's doing that, like he's coming out of the woodwork and saying, here's where I've been all this time. She's known where he was. She just yeah. didn't have any interest in reconnecting with him. Like, he does not matter to her. And she's very upfront about that. I, like... That is a moment that felt very in control of her situation that I really, really liked the way that she handled all of that.
3: Yeah, and I think, as you mentioned, the original character was English, but they, in the adaptation, cast Leslie Caron and then in the screenplay changed it to uh, the character being French. And I think that actually adds a beneficial layer in that she is an outsider to this situation to the society and so when uh whether it's comic relief small idiosyncrasies of all the people in her building or how maybe people will talk down to her more because she's you know quote unquote a foreigner as i think her landlady calls her in like a rage later on when she says there's bugs in my bed and she's like oh i never liked your kind anyway um it it brings out that side of people and i think the something that I mentioned to you, I think while you were watching it, was there is something very kind about this film. And I don't mean it in that what they're saying is kind, but it's it's not presenting bigotry as acceptable or and it's not ingrained in the text. It's there to show other people as bigots and that they're on the wrong side of things and that she is, not only is she right in her, the, the way she's conducting herself, but she is shown to be a lot kinder person than pretty much everyone around her with a few exceptions. Yeah. And I think that's so much more powerful than say her, you know, s- saving a kitten from a tree or whatever, you know, it's showing other people in that micro aggressive way that they are actually very prejudiced, whether it's towards her or um, Johnny or the, the, the women who live in the basement who yeah. are sex workers, There's so much in this. There's every kind of, and there's, there's, we'll get onto it. We'll get onto the queer stuff later, but there's there's so many parts of this film.
2: There there is explicitly and coded queer stuff in this movie, which I was uh, very pleasantly surprised to find out. uh, And a lot of that is also from the book and the book gets into it more uh, from what I read, like much more explicitly about a, Mm -hmm. a certain character, but also, uh, in different ways in regards to other characters so I'm I'm excited to talk about that I it made me want to read the book reading some of the differences between the book and the film it made me want to uh see what like there's there's also plot differences in terms of you know her relationship to her family even that I was very surprised by that I I will will talk about in a bit but Hmm. yeah no uh something else that uh that I thought of when you were talking about all that is that like in all of the sort of arguments that she ends up getting into with Toby in the second half of the movie, where he's you know being very moody and very absent and treating her very poorly, like he, he, all of the sort of charm that he, like all of the goodwill he gets in the first half of the movie with his charm is immediately squandered just because he's such a shitty partner. He's such a such a terrible guy. He's he's a coward, isn't he? Oh, you he's know, a total the first coward. Sign of,
3: um... Well, yeah, pregnancy. He he darts. He's
2: yeah, sharpers. yeah, a lot of stuff going on with him. Um, but like in all of the sort of arguments where they get into, she's never. It's not just that she's never raising her voice, but she's never even like pushing back against it. She's just, mm-hmm. you know, taking it in a way, but like not in a way that makes her feel weak. It's just in a way that like, I'm not going to engage with you because you're being childish. You're being selfish you're being stupid in trying to argue with me about this so just like like why are you arguing with me what's what's the point of this like like, yeah, I like by refusing oh, no just by refusing to engage with him that's her way of you know of arguing her way of you know pushing back against the the uh misguided sort of beliefs that he's holding is just by like i'm not even going to to dignify that argument because it's a stupid argument so just like like when, uh, when they're arguing about how it ends up being that he's mad that she's pregnant and it's not his. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that she didn't tell him or that she had been with another man. It's just the, uh, that there's this reminder of that, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, just, just suck it up, dude. Um, but like throughout all of that, she's just trying to get him to even say what he's mad about. Like she's not even arguing with him because he's not even telling her what argument he's, he's having with himself internally. And I I don't know, I I kind of lost where I was going with that sentence and with that concept, but I I just really like the way that, that that this isn't a traditional sort of like, Oh, they're in a relationship. And so they're going to argue about these things. Like the arguments in this aren't Mm -hmm. your, your typical dramatic melodramatic you know. Yeah, the they feel they feel real. Yeah, it just feels yeah. like these people failing to understand each other.
3: Yeah, and I think this, um, the genre which The L-Shaped Room comes from and fits in is this kitchen sink drama, which wasn't just, I, I'd say there's examples even in the 1963 Oscar race of films that were made in America that fit to this genre. So it's not exclusively British, but say a film that uh this reminded me of was um look back in anger or don't look back in anger i always get the title wrong because there's a an oasis album with the other title but the one with um richard burton
2: yeah uh here i'll I'll pull up because the wikipedia page for kitchen sink realism has like a list of movies that yeah into it uh look back in anger yeah look back in anger right so that was i believe written by john osborne
3: who was a contemporary of Brian Forbes who wrote and directed this and he was known as one of the angry young men so they were these you know playwrights that wrote about social realism and that's the thing they often had male protagonists so in Look Back in Anger which was a very close Oscar nominee for Richard Burton I'd say because he showed up a lots of precursors and then didn't make it to the five um, but he, you know so many like that and um, Saturday Night Sunday Morning center the film on a male lead this sporting life the same film that you know was in this oscar race they all have these male leads who it's very clear are the embodiment of the writer who were who were pretty much always male and i think the interesting part of l-shaped room is there's a female protagonist there isn't i wouldn't even say there's a co-lead that is male tom bell is not playing the co-lead he's, yeah, he's gone for a
2: while like it, it is yeah. it is part of the plot that he disappears for a while and is just completely out. like that is yeah. instrumental to the plot uh, moving forward in the way that it does is that he dips for a while because he he can't take the fact that she's pregnant
3: yeah uh, and you could you could almost see a version that follows him that when he leaves out that door You follow him walking around London streets, you know, talking to strangers, throwing pebbles into the Thames or whatever, you know, that it could focus on his angst about not being the father of the child of the woman he loves. But the fact that it stays with her, that it's telling her story, and that that his concern that the woman he loves is bearing a child that isn't his, it shows that he is the irrational one, that that's an outdated belief and it doesn't ever indulge him. It maybe sympathizes with him by saying, okay, this is a common prejudice people have, but ultimately you are being unfair to her because she she loves you and it shouldn't matter whose child this is, but it is perhaps an understandable fear. And so, yeah, I think as you mentioned before, when they're arguing, which tends to be the sort of central conflict of the film, she remains the in the right, for lack of a better term.
2: Oh, most definitely. Most def- and like, at the end, when she ends up having the baby and he comes to visit her at the hospital, she, you know, at that point, she's like completely over him, basically. The way that she treats him is like, yeah, it, it is important that we had what we had, but I'm not going to hold on to that. And you shouldn't either. We should both be able to just move on and acknowledge that like it, it didn't work out. And so like, yeah, thank you. But also I'm, I'm not going to come running back to you just because you've shown up to visit me at the hospital and written a story about us. Like, yeah.
3: Yeah. And she has to, she's facing the, he's like, but what are you going to do? Like, um and she's like, I'll just move back in with my parents. He's like, Are you sure? And she's like, Yeah, no, no, it's not going to be ideal. Like, they're gonna paint me as this lonely widow. But at the same time, I I know I'm gonna do that because I waited around for you and you never turned up and you're probably gonna keep doing this. So uh it's incredibly strong and independent of her to just be like, Yeah, no, it's not ideal, but um, I'm not gonna stay here for you. And that's and I I I don't know if you sensed it, but in that those last scenes i was like just tell her you're gonna stay But i think even if he had she would have doubted him and you could almost see if this film kept going on and on him leaving and getting nervous again and she doesn't deserve that
2: yeah and you can see like you get the sense from her performance that like you could see someone else taking this role and taking even those same lines and delivering it in a way that like She's saying that she's going to move back home and all this stuff, but what she's really saying is, "I want you to take me back." But mm-hmm. no, the way that she delivers these lines is like, "I'm going to move back in with my parents, and that's better than anything I could have had with you because you're you're just such a, a emotional little fuck up, like a, a fuck boy. He's basically a fuck boy. He's a, he's, a yeah. sad, he's a sad boy, and she finally has come to terms with that, and is like yeah no I don't want you in my life basically like mm. that is all in the way that she looks at him and says these things of like I, I don't regret what we had but I would I don't want to go through that all again and she's very clear about like this isn't this isn't the life that I want for me or my daughter so mm. you know what I have back home with my parents that don't really respect me is still the better option and it's also, uh, like, it's not just that she's moving back home, but she's moving out of the, the boarding house. The uh, titular L-shaped yeah, room. The, the L-shaped yeah. room. She's moving out of the L-shaped room to move back uh, and par- partially to get away from him, too, just because he causes more trouble than he's worth. And she's yeah. uh, she's realized that now. A bit of a tangent, but I've just, having reiterated the title, what
3: do you think of the title?
2: Every time I, I hear the title, it reminds me of a joke uh, from Dimitri Martin's stand-up. Uh, it's just a little throwaway joke of like, uh, I have an L-shaped couch, uh, lowercase, which is, is stupid. Okay. It's a very stupid <laughs> joke. It's just like,
0: yeah. yeah.
2: But whatever it is, I just always think about that when I think about this title. But yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's an interesting title. It definitely catches your attention. Like, why is this called The L-Shaped Room? What does that have to do with anything? And ultimately, it's just sort of, it, it doesn't have much to do with it doesn't have anything to do with the plot it's just describing this room at the top of the stairs that she's moved into that's full of bugs and is uh, sort of enclosed around johnny's little apartment that he has but yeah i don't it, it's a nice title it, it, it doesn't really i mean what other title would you even come up with to sort of describe oh. the plot like pregnant lady sad that's a, be a, a well, shitty title I mean the Natalie Wood
3: one. Uh, not that they're identical, but "Love with the Other Stranger." The proper is stranger. A, I think it's the Love name with of the... the. Yeah, yeah that's an odd that title. As... Yeah. Oh, love with the Proper stranger. I always found that an odd one, just because yeah. it, it almost doesn't sound quite right. I mean, but is, I do like yeah. it.
2: And all of all of these in this race are interesting titles, like a. Uh, uh, this sporting life yeah, is, is an yeah. interesting title. Hud—that's a character name—but it doesn't sound like it's going to be a character name. Yeah. And then uh, Irma La which I haven't seen, so I don't know how the title uh, applies there. But
3: yeah, it's French for some something sweet, I think.
2: Le yeah. Du- La It's also uh, Shirley MacLaine's character's name. So yes, uh,
3: I tell you what—I another... mean, we were almost going to postpone this so that maybe you could have uh, seen that. Yeah. Um, that's a film that I've seen once, and I with my nana, I think. She was like, Oh, it's incredible. And you know me, I, well, you may know this about me Billy Wilder is my oh, king. Uh, yeah, I love him. I, I love him. It, I love and him. you know, you love him, and everyone should love him. Yeah. Um, and that film is sort of like, I held it in my regard as like, This is the last great Billy Wilder. And I went back and rewatched it a few. few months ago and it did diminish a little bit it's it's quite conversely to l-shaped room one of those old films where you're like oh these like the values they're expressing in this are just they're not even like because it's kind of billy wilder sentimental sweet but like it's so ill founded that you're just a bit like oh it's kind of sweet but i feel like the whole premise is just very sexist and almost unavoidably so and it is a good film and jack lemon's incredible and shirley mcclain's incredible but yeah it's it's i'm glad you you watched this one instead naturally as you would
2: but yeah it'd be weird yeah. if i went into this episode without having seen the l-shaped room but yeah well i was listening to um your previous episode as
3: of this record so the one with sam um about two days one night and at one point he was like why would someone uh listen to a podcast about the film they've never seen i was like i do it all the time like yeah i know we haven't really done like a plot synopsis but i imagine if people are listening to this they might have seen it but it's quite an old film and i don't know if you've had any difficulty finding it but it's on youtube apparently
2: that's where i ended up finding it There's there's a youtube upload i i went through my usual uh very legal streaming sites, mm-hmm, we'll say, mm-hmm. uh, and none of those would load. And then I ended up just finding it on YouTube. Uh, so if if you want to go watch this movie, there's there's an upload of it. Uh, I oh. don't I don't remember what it's titled. It's something like Brian Forbes the the L shaped room movie subtitle something something like. It's not right. just yeah, but like it's it's up there. You can you can find it. You can and it's worth checking out definitely if definitely. If and I, I yeah, I got it
3: and. Um... I think in the UK, they, Studio Canal, I think is this, the distributor, re-releases a lot of films from around this era and they've um, restored them. And I don't know about your um, version of this that you saw, but mine was like, I was like, this is a beautiful film, not particularly drawing attention to itself in the cinematography. It's shot by Douglas Slocum, who is one of those names where I'm like, he lived to 103, oh, he wow. was British, and he shot all of the fr- first three Indiana Jones films. Don't think he ever won an Oscar. He maybe got two nominations in his lifetime or maybe yeah, three. I,
2: I, saw, I was reading up on him a little bit. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting career for him, some of his other movies. Uh, what else did he do here? He did The Lion in Winter, uh, which. Right. He, he did Jesus Christ Superstar and Julia and The Great Gatsby from 1974. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lavender Hill Mob, Man in the White. So- yeah, a, a long career. Kind Hearts and Connections. Yeah, uh, spanning several decades. Uh, yeah, yeah, Oscar nominated for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Julia, oh, okay. And travels with my aunt. Uh,
3: oh, okay. That it's a okay. So those are weird. That those are the three he got nominated for. And I think it's kind of weird he didn't win for Raiders.
2: I think did Reds end up winning, or was it Cherry? That of Fire? would is one of those two. I, I if I had to put my
3: money on one, because people. Uh, yeah I put my money on reds quite often um, I, this is my party trick because and you might be able to do exactly the same thing but because um, I've seen all the Oscar films um, I tell pe- people about that sometimes and I say give me a year, give me a category and I'll tell you who won and sometimes people are really mean and they're like 1982 best cinematography and sometimes I just like pick the best picture winner and say it with confidence and it's yeah. half the time it is right
2: half the time yeah
3: um, so I'd say Reds for that, because Reds is like a big sweeping epic, whereas Chariots of Fire is yeah. has the shot at the, you know, the running on the beach. But I can't think of anything else that iconic. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's a tangent.
2: Yes. Uh, we're, yeah. we're kind of slipping into talking about the rest of the movie, but do you have anything else to say about Leza Caron here and her performance? It's a really, it's a really marvelous performance from her. And it was, you know as good as it is now, watching it with in, in retrospect, uh, I imagine at the time, knowing her just as this, you know, like, chipper, sort of French-American dancer that's, like, a little bit alluring, but also a little bit like Girl Next Door. Uh, mm-hmm. I also, uh, tangent from that, but this whole time watching it, she looks exactly like Michelle Williams. Did you pick up on that? Have you noticed that? Uh,
3: I thought, when she was sitting in chairs at the start, I think when she fell asleep in the chair, I was like, Who does she look like? And I don't think, I don't think I quite see Michelle Williams. Because I think of Michelle Williams as quite, having quite small eyes. I don't know whether I'm totally wrong there. Whereas Leslie Karen
2: has those like big deer-like eyes. Yeah, that's probably, I just mean, they have the the exact same smile. Like they have the same sort of like the upturned ends of their mouth. And like the, they have the same sort of lips. And I don't know, just... Every time she smiled in this, and I also watched uh, American in Paris in preparation because I hadn't seen that before. But the oh, whole time, okay. I was just like, man, she looks so much like Michelle Williams.
3: Uh, oh, I, I kind of thought Amelia Clarke when I was straining to think of who she looked a bit I like. I can
2: see that. Yeah, they, she also has a very wide smile. Uh, yeah, but,
3: but she's pretty. yeah, she's, she's absolutely beautiful in this film. and. And yeah, I think with her performance, it's one of those ones that sits in a strange place between being great, but not... Well, iconic is a stretch. Not You know, there's so many, so many great films that aren't iconic. But it's kind of not one of those ones where you'd necessarily say, watch L-Shaped Room for her. I would say watch this film for the whole thing. Like, it's the, it's the writing, I think, and the performances from pretty much the whole cast that make this so special. So yeah, I don't think I have anything else to say about her, but I do agree that also the context at the time, not only her persona, but the material and the fact that she was doing it in England rather than you know coming from the Hollywood system to do this little gritty film. Like she said in an interview, um, that when she comes into the building at the start of the film, the crew had to be really quiet because There was someone in the room of the building or room nearby who was dying, and they didn't want to make a loud noise. And so it was shot on location, but you know it was shot literally in I think Notting Hill. Like I'm, I've never lived in London myself, but yeah, it's it's uh, very very different from an American Paris. So I think just having that fish out of water context makes it all the more impressive.
2: Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, move on and talk about the rest of the movie.
1: You never get married. No, dear.
0: No, I never went in for that. Not in the sight of God, anyway. I did have a friend. We lived together for years. A real love match it was, you know. Well, I've never wanted anything since... Was he on the stage, too? Who, dear? Your friend.
1: That's my friend over there, dear, in that frame. Will you look? Yes,
2: dear, yes. Let's do look? I want to start this off. I just want to mention a couple of the key differences that I found from, uh, from uh, page to screen. Uh, obviously, yeah. the big one being that uh, in the book, Jane is... English, and in the movie she's French, because obvious reasons. But um, the, the one that we kept sort of handing out is that there's, there's this character, uh, Johnny, who is a Black, I believe, um, Caribbean? I couldn't quite place where his accent was. And that's not... Uh, he's played by Brock Peters, who's probably best known for... He's Tom Robinson in uh, 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 To Kill a Mockingbird. He had a recurring role on Star Trek, I think Next Generation? One of the later Star Treks. He's... He's a, yeah. he's a recurring character there. And he's, he had a long, a long career. Uh, he's in stuff like uh, Soylent Green and a bunch of other things. But so he, um, he sort of lives in the apartment that is cradled within the L of the L-shaped room. And it's a, it's a very <laughs> small apartment, uh, but he's this very charming guy. He's friends with her and Toby. He's a musician. Um, and there's one passing reference to it in the movie, but in the book, he's apparently explicitly gay which uh uh oh oh yeah he oh you didn't oh no he's the gay character in the
3: book oh right i had no idea because there's a point in the film and you, is he meant to be gay in the film do you think
2: it's there's there's a point where it's her and toby are in the room and he's not there and she's commenting about how like oh, I put this picture up above this hole in the wall because the first day I was here, he popped his head up and it scared me and he's watching all this stuff. And uh, uh, Toby says, here, I wrote it down. uh, He says, "Oh, oh, they're all a bit bent. And she goes, what, black people? And he goes, oh no, not black people. And they just sort of leave it at that. But the implication there being that like, the they that he's talking about is gay people. Oh, I, I did hear that. And it kind of just went straight over my head as if I was like probably
3: oh. most of the audience in the 60s. just like, oh, okay, I don't know what that means.
2: I um, only picked up on that because it says so in the Wikipedia plot summary. And then in doing my research, it says in the book that he's like explicitly a queer character.
3: Right. That, okay, I'm, I've
2: been a bit oblivious to that because
3: when, um, so as the plot progresses and, um, you know, Jane is yes. glow- growing closer to Toby. Um, Johnny, played by Brock, um, seems to be jealous. And I thought he was jealous because he'd wanted to be with Jane. i That's how I read it, but maybe he's just lonely or yeah. well, what judgmental. He says,
2: what he says, when he, he gets really angry at Jane uh, uh, because the night before he heard the two of them having sex uh, mm. because their apartments are so close and the walls are so thin. And uh, eventually, as she sort of pushes against, like, what like it doesn't change anything about us as friends, like, just yeah. because you know this about us, all this stuff. He, he eventually says uh, something to the effect of, well, before you moved in, uh, Toby always came and talked to me about things. Like, mm-hmm. he always, I was the one that, and now he goes and talks to you about everything going on in his life and now he's kind of cut me out of his life
1: and oh. I read that and it's like
2: oh he's you're like in love with Toby aren't you and then yeah. that, that's why he he's the one that tells Toby that Jane is pregnant and yeah. that it's another man's baby and that's why Toby runs off and uh, you know is a little sad boy on his own because oh no my girlfriend had sex with another man she's not pure anymore I feel terrible fuck you Toby um but yeah uh yeah that that character is uh in the, apparently in the book uh much more like they, they they speak about it much more openly. It just
3: popped into my head, I suppose British film didn't have to obey the Hayes code, which I mean by nineteen sixty two was being undermined pretty constantly to the point where it wasn't relevant, but still audience tastes weren't like you know the studios and writers would have known that most people are homophobic and do not want to see gay characters represented in films
2: especially a gay black character
3: yeah yeah and the fact that he brock peters had come just the no the same year i suppose been in to kill a mockingbird which is so much about race and civil rights and you know it's a it's a perfect confluence of source material and the, the time it was made you know just as civil rights were um gaining speed and gaining traction and building in america and I think there's a tendency uh, for some people in the UK to go, oh, we. I mean, this is no offence to you, and it's a misconception, like, oh, we're, you know, the Americans are so racist, but you know, we're, we're never as racist. And it's like, but that's no excuse. That's, that's not the point, really, because yeah. racism really does exist in the UK so rampantly. And it did back then, like the 60s. We didn't have um, segregation, but it's not as it and you can see it in the screenplay of this film not that he brian forbes is endorsing the racist attitudes that were probably widely felt but the fact that the landlady when she um is showing uh, jane the room she says oh yeah you know i let and she says she says like an abbreviated n-word like just quite flippantly and you're like "Ooh, okay um but she's saying it in the context of like oh i i even let them stay here and you're like Ah, there's a lot of um, that. It's the same attitude, really, that people have now, and they're like, "Oh, we're not that racist." It's like, yeah, you don't say that because you quite clearly are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it I- touches on some some
2: sensitive things,
3: but yeah, I thought I needed to mention that.
2: Mm-hmm. I also do want to say, like, beyond the fact that just it's an interestingly uh, uh, portrayed character, I also think that Brock Peters is really good here, uh, just on yeah. a performance level. He's very charming. He, uh, Other than the point where he pops his head through the window and scares <laughs> her, uh, his sort of introduction into the film, uh, Jane has slept on her chair the night before because there's bugs in her bed. And he sort of wakes her up with a cup of tea and goes on this whole like, you know, uh, sort of uh, presentation about how to kill the bugs in your bed and that you want to do that on your own and show them to the landlady because if you get her she's going to like she's in cahoots with the bugs she will make a lot of noise so they run away before she even uh lets you pull back the covers and show that there's no bugs there because she's I, I don't know it, it's very funny and very charming and then but he's also not a one note like oh we need this you know comic relief character let's have it be this black gay musician, like. Like we said, he has the very dramatic moment where she confronts him after Toby's gone. But before that, the night before when they're uh, in bed and sort of speaking lovingly to each other, every once in a while, it cuts back to him in his little apartment, curled up in bed, just like wide awake, listening to them and just, you know, having the worst time of his life because, you know, he's probably in love with Toby or at the very least, he feels left out. Uh, yeah. but probably more so the, the former but yeah no, I, I really I thought he did a great job here uh, yeah. I, would, I would have liked to see more of him but I also think he's in it the perfect amount that like he isn't the central focus mm-hmm. and to to put more emphasis on him would be kind of taking away from Jane's story like it, it is a perfect mm-hmm. supporting role that fulfills everything you need it to be I, I, I really liked him here
3: yeah, and a part, he's one of those characters that you feel for so much. Genuine sympathy, like when they cut away to him, he, overhearing them in, in the embrace of each other's arms, you know, having sex or just talking and confiding in each other. And it cuts to him and he's just all alone. And you can see how lonely he is. I mean, she's in the L-shaped room. I feel like the title is like, the L-shaped room is sort of, um, I don't know if it's like an undesirable room to have. I don't, I think I have actually lived in an L-shaped room. You know it's a bit it's a bit cramped but he lives in the like crook of the L he lives in an even smaller room yeah um, and you really do feel for him and when he betrays her trust by telling Toby that she's pregnant you you're, you're quite annoyed at him but he, I don't know he he was being honest he's a very he's the moral kind of driving force of the film in some ways because Toby certainly isn't And I think some people are softly sort of pushing her in the right direction. But he's kind of like, well, I had to tell him. But maybe he did tell him out of jealousy now. So they're all a little bit, you know, fragile and um, have acted out of insecurity.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's not a perfect character. None of these people are perfect characters. They're all all victims of circumstance and poverty and having to be pushed into this situation of the shittiest boarding house in in the country, basically. Like,
3: yeah. (gasps) Yeah, although watching this, there's because one of the first scenes is her sort of very cautiously having a look at this room and, you know, the landlady's very, very, you know, uh, brazen. I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, she's uh, saying, oh, you know, it's for £3 a week or £3 a month or however much. Is that? Is that enough? And she goes, no, you know, no, I'm not going to pay that for this room. She goes, OK, I like you, you know, we'll, we'll sort something out. And, you know, and then later, Toby's like, gosh, I can't believe anyone can flog this room to, uh, you know, that she can flog this room to anyone, let alone you. Um, I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, people would pay, like, at least £1,000 a month to have a top bedroom room in London, even if there's bugs in the bed, even if it's got a hole that your neighbour will peek through. London is, like, one of the most, you know, highly priced competitive places to live. And just watching this, you're like... Uh, this neighborhood's probably, well, it's Notting Hill. It's gentrified. It's up and coming. And I think that is why I like this film how it's kind of like, ah, oh, the, the past used to be kind of like simpler, didn't it? You know, when you could just pay three pounds for a room and someone would have to, the landlord would even be trying, you know, oh no, I'll, I'll lower the price. In London, it was yeah. unthinkable. So I was like, wow, oh, the, the past was nice, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. I think some IMDb trivia, or something said that the, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't remember I don't remember what the uh the modern equivalent of that would be in uh in in like current day pounds but it's like 50 bucks yeah. a week basically in in, in in American dollars yeah $50 that's like $200 a month rent for this I and mean, it's a small apartment but still yeah it's not um, nice but it probably includes like water and everything they probably didn't break it down like that and um, yeah
3: yeah you it, can get bogged down in that but still I was like cuz also um old british money like even like 40 years ago was a bit different. Like you'd have, I think you'd have like guineas and two bob or whatever. And I don't even understand that. But sometimes my family are like, oh, do you remember when, you know, a house, our rent used to cost three tuppence. And you're like, I have no idea how much that was, but it sounds like nothing.
2: Yeah. Uh, The past. Yes, the past. Uh, As far as the rest of the cast, uh, we've talked about how much Toby the character sucks. But I think... Uh, we, we should note that uh, Tom Bell, who plays him, does a really good, like, it's a great performance as this shitty soft boy writer that, you know, <sighs> is clearly still in love with this famous actress that he maybe had an affair with, something, mm-hmm. something. It's kind of unclear. Apparently also that's something that comes up in the book. Uh, okay. More, more. Oh, that was the other thing. Um, I, I totally left out the thing that I, I hinted at earlier that uh, there's a different, like an entirely different plot with her family. Uh, oh yeah, and I'll get to that in a second, but I, I just want to okay. say Tom Bell, really great here. It's, it's really a, good. It's a, because it's a character that throughout the movie your opinion of him changes so drastically. Like he starts out, oh, he's like kind of the annoying guy in the apartment downstairs who's you know following her up to her room and it's like oh show me around all this stuff. But then later as they all become friends, the three of them, he's like oh, okay, this is more of a charming guy. He likes her. He's he's sympathetic. He is. A, emotional he's friendly all this stuff and then as they sort of connect more and he gets more insecure and everything like oh no this guy sucks and has always sucked we were right at the beginning uh, and he does all that without really changing the performance it just changes our perception of him and I think that's that is a really commendable thing to be able to do as an actor to be able to have to make the care the audience, Change sympathies so drastically multiple times over the course of one movie. I think that that's that is a really strong showing from him.
3: Yeah, and I think he's um, not a he's not a selfish actor who is not going to hog the limelight. He is selfless in some ways, but he's also just surrendering the space to not just Leslie Karen to fill it as she should. But I think. As you mentioned with Brock Peters, you couldn't have more of Brock Peters because you need room for other characters. Same with him in a way. When he leaves, it it allows her to go on her own journey of loneliness, of um, loss in a way, but then also to find connections with other people in the house. And I think that structure of um, having her as the lead and everyone around her being these satellites, you know, it, it makes the film so rich in finding these different dynamics of how people also want to help her or how people want to make the first step because she's quite shy at first and i think when she makes that friendship with johnny and toby it really you start seeing her joke and you know being really happy and it's a nice bit of levity to a film that on paper could be incredibly dreary um and yeah and then his absence is really felt so i think and he is really charming but i think that is also the writing the writing is just so good at being like you should well this is why she will fall in love with this man because he is charming and he is persistent without being creepily persistent
2: until he gets to the point where he is yeah like yeah yeah after a while it ends up getting to be like oh no this guy is really is kind of uh imprinting himself upon her in in some Mm. kind of gross ways." But again, that's without there being too drastic a shift in... Like, it's not jarring that all Mm -hmm. of a sudden we start hating this guy again. It it feels very natural to the character as he's been portrayed earlier that, like, oh, these sort of things that were charming at first end up becoming red flags. And, like, that's very realistic to how this sort of relationship would end up coming out. I I, I really liked that. Um, Also, just while we're talking about him... This is a tangent from, I was just looking at his Wikipedia to see if I had seen him in in anything else. And one of the things that it cites is like one of his most famous roles is on Prime Suspect. Uh, Oh, yeah. uh, It's like the most stereotypical thing you could say about a British procedural drama is looking at the fact that it ran from 1991 to 2006 and there were 15 episodes. (laughs) <laughs>
3: yep. Cause it had Helen Mirren and it's like yeah. I think in ninety one she wasn't that big a star. And then by two thousand six she wins an Oscar that year and she's had, yes. you know, two free nominations at that point.
2: Yeah. I feel I like just, that's one that
3: maybe ran for like six episodes and then they did a special, a special, a special.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just fifteen years, fifteen episodes. That's that is British TV for you. Um, mm-hmm. have you seen it prior to that? I have not.
3: I haven't either. I read that he's like, it's his last performance and he's like visibly very very ill and then he died that year. And you're like well that must have been um, depressing to film. Yeah.
2: Uh, Yeah. Anyway. Okay. uh, The the thing that I put a pin in uh, from the Mm -hmm. the difference from book to movie is that apparently her father is actually a much bigger role in the book. Um, When she had told him that she was pregnant, he kicked her out of the house. Uh, It doesn't in the write-up, I found it didn't say anything about the mother, but I assume she's probably also still in the picture. But mm-hmm. uh, in the movie, it's uh, she he's sort of presented, like she speaks about him as thinking he's better than everyone else and sort of looking down. Like he, she says something like this would never happen in his family, uh, referring mm-hmm. to the fact that she's gotten pregnant out of wedlock. But in the book, he kicks her out and all that, and then uh, apparently immediately regrets it writes her a letter trying to like apologize but she reads it as very cold and uh unconcerned and then eventually he like shows up he like comes to visit her and try to persuade her tries to persuade her to come back home and all this and he's like a very active character in the narrative of the book and i understand why they get why that ends up getting cut uh just in terms of you know this is already a two hour long movie with a lot of supporting characters that uh come and go, I feel like adding one more to the mix might have made things feel a little bit bloated but mm. I would have liked to see that dynamic sort of explored of like I, I don't know, I, I just I, that sounded very, again, makes me want to read the book and see how that plays out on the page and see how that dynamic uh, changes my perception of her and of, of the story in general
3: Yeah, it's interesting that that was omitted but I understand why, as you say, because there are lots of supporting characters and I feel like she is one of those there would be a tendency to portray this character as in search of a father figure or some kind of older influence to help her, you know, tell her what to do, that sort of thing. But she is so steadfast and independent that when she does seek the guidance or friendship of older people like Mavis, who I'd like to get onto at some point, yeah. um, she she doesn't need them in the same way that she would need a parent, that she is independent. She is doing her own thing. But from them, she learns. I don't know. She she grows fond and a bit more comfortable in this like quite horrible house she's in and really bad situation she's landed in. That she finds, you know, kindness in strangers and love and affection, and then some, you know, withdrawal of that. But yeah, can we talk about Mavis? Yeah, yeah, go right ahead. So Mavis is a character that lives on the bottom floor and she sort of peeks her head out every time someone runs by in case they want to come in and have a cup of tea with her. So you get the sense she's a bit lonely. And she's played by, we've we've both made notes of this, Uh, haven't we? uh, Cicely Courtenage, I believe is how that would be pronounced. Cicely Courtenage. I think she is fantastic in this film. Oh yeah, she's great. Yeah. She's she's just that character that, again, much like... um, Leslie Caron does a lot without saying a lot. She embodies it. It's a lot of um, unspoken longing and regret or sort of wistful sadness. And yeah, I don't know if there's too much to her. Well, there's a lot to her. But I mean, the thing that I did want to talk about was that she is gay.
2: Yeah, and that's apparently not in the book. Like in the book, it's referred to because she's she's sort of like an older vaudeville actress almost yeah. that is a uh, uh past her prime uh, there's a point early on where she runs into toby outside and she uh he asks like oh have you have you gotten any any jobs and she goes oh well i had an audition but uh they they wanted i guess they wanted a name and it's just yeah. sort of like oh you you get the sense that at, at a certain point maybe she was a name and now she's this old lady who just lives with her cat that's going deaf yeah. and uh, can barely afford to uh, to get by, but like she uh, she ultimately is not sad. She's mm. still very very cheerful, very engaged with the other people that live there. Like she's friendly to everyone, knows them all by name. Like even the, even the women downstairs, the sex workers, she's still on good terms with all of them. She ends up going to the party and she does the whole song and dance number, which I thought was good. Yeah. Yeah, no, she, she's she's really great. But then, uh, what I was saying, uh, oh yeah, in the book, it's referenced that she's had like multiple affairs with men in the industry, and like that's sort of part of her backstory. But then they changed that oh. in the movie, I guess, as sort of you know, well, we already took away the, the Johnny, the more explicitly, uh, more explicit references to Johnny being gay. So let's sort of siphon that off to this other supporting character and have that be, you know, not to completely erase the queer uh aspects of the text just to sort of shift them to another character i guess I don't yeah know.
3: which they so key, easily could have kept her as uh, a heterosexual a, a character who has had male lovers and that's explicit but it's this what i think when you asked me to choose a film and when i chose this i was thinking of the scene where mavis is making christmas cards and leslie caron's um jane comes in and she says you know why are you making christmas cards um, and she said, oh, you know, the earlier you make them, the earlier you send them, the more you get back, which I think is a very cute, like old fashioned way of thinking. But then they get onto the matter of love, because I think this is when Johnny has, not Johnny, um, Toby has gone, I think. Um, yeah, because yeah. he's not there when she's about to have a baby. Um, but yeah, so she's she's almost going to have the baby in a few weeks. And um, Mavis goes, oh, yeah, no, there was someone once. And we had, you know, this this incredible love. But she's gone now. And I think uh, Jane says, oh, you know, who was he? And she says, what what do you mean? Oh, um, there's a picture of them on the mantelpiece. And without even showing the shot, she looks down, you know, Leslie Caron looks down at the photo, looks back at Mavis, um, and then she just says, takes all sorts, you know, takes all sorts to make a world. And they never explicitly say it's a woman. They never explicitly say, you know, I'm, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian, but you just know it's all written there. And yeah. it's, it's trusting the audience to understand it. It's very understandable. And I just remember when I watched this with my Nana, um, we normally don't talk during films. She's very like reverential to, you know, we, we, we don't want to miss anything. So we'll talk about it afterwards. And I just remember she broke the rule she just turned to me and she just had like a twinkle in her eye and she went, now isn't that special? Like for a film from that. And I was like, it is. Like it's so, so common to watch old films and just either explicitly or implicitly you see those hints of homophobia or racism or sexism, anything like that. And the fact that this film is kind and accepting, especially in the Mavis character, you're just like, oh, it's like a little... Message from the past, just reaching out, going, we weren't all bad, but also just like, yeah. people have always been like this, and there has been acceptance, and I just think that is, oh, that's such a special part of this film.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I really appreciated the, uh, the sort of forward thinking. I guess you can say that yeah. it, it feels very contemporary in its sensibilities, um, and that can kind of segue us into. I want to talk about. Uh, this is not my first time talking about a Brian Forbes movie. I have previously covered The Whisperers. Uh, and it's oh, also yeah. Not, also not my last time because I will also be talking seance on a wet afternoon. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting career for him. Uh, mm. uh, and I, I just want to say, because The Whisperers also has, uh, it, it touches less on homophobia, but like uh, uh, the Edith Evans character in that is racist and that's like a, a point in that movie is that the upstairs couple that she's so wary of is an interracial couple and she like that that's something that is commented on as an as a negative aspect of her character but uh i i wanted to compare these two movies and that like i think as much as i really like edith evans's performance in that movie i ended up coming away from the movie a little bit uh underwhelmed Whereas okay. in this one I, th- I think the big difference that i I felt in this one versus that one is that the supporting cast of this movie uh, it's much easier to identify and connect with the other characters and like mm-hmm. it feels like there's a it's much more of an ensemble piece whereas in that one I had a hard time really sticking to anyone else in that cast yeah uh, and there's like there's some crossover cast uh a- 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 Avis Bunnage I believe is how, I don't know how that would be pronounced but she plays. The yeah. Woman here. she's. I think she's the woman that drugs Edith Evans and uh, robs her in that. Right. And, and then uh, Nanette Newman, who was uh, Brian Forbes' wife, she is in The Whispers. She's the woman in the interracial couple upstairs. And in this, she's the new girl that has uh, moved into the apartment in the very last scene. Uh, and I thought she was. She was good here. They both. Eva Ava Spondage as as Doris is really good at playing this. Uh, I I think this was in maybe the BFI write up or something. They referred to her as a, uh, a landlady with a heart of lead, which yeah, I I really liked that description. Um, but yeah, no uh, great performances from them. But just yeah, it's interesting. He's a very interesting filmmaker. Uh, I'm I don't know all that. He was also an actor beforehand. Uh, yeah, actor, writer, guy. producer. Yeah, and I think they
3: were going to get oh I oh who was it? They were going to get a different director who directed in this genre to make this, but then I think they needed to make the film quite quickly, so Leslie Cameron was like, well, or maybe it wasn't up to her. I think Richard Attenborough produced, so he could have been like, well, get Brian Forbes, who's writing it, to direct it. Um, It's
2: also his second movie, as as a director. What had he made before? Oh, Whistle Down the Wind. Oh, Whistle Down Uh, the Wind, yeah, which is
3: like integral to the British New Wave movement. Like, it's a film I haven't actually seen, I think it's something to do with God, but not in like a godly way. It's more children think they hear Jesus in the woods, or it sounds odd, but apparently it's really, really good. Yeah, yeah. But and um, Brian Forbes, I don't know if you've seen or heard of it. Um, he
2: wrote a film called The Angry Silence. I've heard that title, but I don't know anything else about it.
3: Yeah, it got an Oscar nomination for him, and I think his two co-writers for screenplay in 1960, and it is phenomenal if that was a lone acting nominee i would have asked to do that one i mean i love both these films but it is incredible it's about um a strike that goes on at a factory and then richard attenborough who decides to break the picket line and go in and work while his like colleagues are striking and the conflict and turmoil that comes from him breaking the picket line it's really, really powerful stuff, and Richard Attenborough is the one who breaks the the picket line, and he is phenomenal. I think the more you watch films from this era, which some of them are very, very small and hard to find, but Richard Attenborough, I mean, in Science on the Wet well- Afternoon, which you will cover, he is really, really an incredible actor. You wonder why he wasn't nominated for an Oscar for acting. Yeah, it was great.
2: Yeah, I'm. I, he's always someone when he pops up in something, just because you know. The the little nostalgia part of my brain that's like, Hey, Jurassic park. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. No, just anytime he pops up in something, especially in this era, it's always interesting. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit, uh, with another actor that, uh, comes up in one of these movies, uh, as a sort of nostalgia. Hey, it's that guy. But, uh, yeah. Anything else about this movie? I, like, there's so much to talk about. This is really a great movie. Go check it out. If you haven't seen it again, uh, don't know why you'd be getting this far and still undecided as to whether you want to go watch it or not but yeah if you haven't those... seen
3: it i'm sorry because we might have <laughs> spoiled some of it but it is as you say go check it out it is really worth seeing i think there's well one trivia thing that you've probably read is when um, mavis does the song uh, take me back to dear old blighty and um, that was sampled on a smiths record yeah that version of it i don't know i'm not i'm not i'm proud to say i'm not a huge fan of the smiths <laughs> It's not that cool to like them anymore, but um, I do quite like quite a few of their songs, but not The Queen Is Dead, the single. But also, I think the, the thing to round it out with for the film is um, the ending is it literally ends, again, sorry if people haven't seen this because this is a spoiler, obviously, but um, it ends on a shot of Toby's book that she leaves in his... Oh, no, 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 her, her letter to him about the book, and it literally says it would have been marvelous with an ending and that's the end of the film yeah and the credits are all over and you're like that took some gumption to just make the ending a note about how his book didn't have an ending because it isn't an end it isn't quite an ending but it is a really good one
2: yeah yeah she's had a baby but like it's not the end of that story that's the beginning that is the beginning of a story that is not the ending of a story but you know that that's as much as they're gonna give us that's that's where this chapter of the story ends, and yeah. there's so, but it, it's the ending of their story together, and yeah. uh, uh, it's a non-ending. And I, I really it's it's a I'm glad that it didn't end with them getting back together. I think that yeah. it, it's really important to what the movie is saying that they don't, and that she do, it's not even that uh, oh there's still something between them, but it's better off if they end up not together. Like no, she has completely moved on and it's her decision to not be with him. And I think that that uh, is really important for this character. Yeah, because she
3: wouldn't have grown if she'd have accepted him again. And that's why we continue to to appreciate her as a character because she doesn't go back to him. So yeah, yeah I,
2: I love that ending. Okay, uh, do you want to move on and talk about this year's
1: Oscars? Let's do it. The nominees for best performance by an actress are Leslie Caron in the L-shaped room for her adroit study of a girl in technical difficulties. Shirley MacLaine in Irma La who allowed us a glimpse of the Late Late Show in Paris. Natalie Wood in Love with a Proper Stranger, Vivid proof that it was a big year for girls in technical difficulty. Patricia Neal in HUD for her portrayal of the slovenly, affectionate housekeeper. Rachel Roberts in This Sporting Life for her portrait of the repressed young widow. And the winner.
2: Okay, so uh, this actually has a, a pretty strong showing in terms of precursors, uh, by way of uh, she she actually won quite a few. She wins the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama up against uh, Natalie Wood and Rachel Roberts, who are both Oscar nominated, and then five other actresses that I didn't write down. Uh, but uh, for here I'll, I'll just pull up the imdb Give me oh my goodness yeah the golden
3: globes in like i think it's 63 and 64 just decided to nominate like 10 people in each of their categories
2: yeah yeah i've talked about this no reason. Year, yeah i've talked about this year and even these globes before when i did my oh, really? episode on uh, the vips oh of course yeah also margaret rutherford ended up winning uh, the globe over eventual Oscar winner for Best Actress, uh, Patricia Neal, who was nominated so, in, Glo- in Supporting at the Globes and still lost to Margaret Rutherford. Wow. Fascinating. Um, that is... I
3: didn't know that. That is re- So, wait, who won drama? Oh, oh sorry. It correct. was Leslie Caron, right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So the other ones here is uh, Alida Valli for The Paper Man, which appears to be an Italian film. Geraldine okay. Page for Toys in the Attic. Maria uh-huh. Vladi for The Conjugal Bed, which also appears to maybe be Italian, uh, Polly Bergen for The Caretakers, and Romy Schneider for The Cardinal, or the other five nominees. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then it's also nominated uh, for Best Foreign Film at the Globes, uh, because this was back in the time where foreign includes the UK. Uh, foreign yeah. can literally mean, like, it can be in English and everything. Uh, but the winner there is... Some some French movie called Any Number Can Win, uh, but among mm. other nominees you have Tom Jones, This Sporting Life, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, and High and Low. So. Uh, oh, well, um, uh, Akira Kurosawa's High and Low. Yes. Yeah. Oh wow! One, one of the, one maybe my favorite movie from this year. Uh, yeah, that's regarded
3: nominees. as one of the best. I didn't know it, it. really had much of a reception at the time. So that's interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This, this French movie that I've literally never heard of. Any number can win. Let's see. It looks Mm -hmm. like Elaine Delon is in it. Okay. Uh, Directed by Henri Vernoy. I've never heard of that person. I know nothing Mm -hmm. about this movie. Uh, It does not appear to have had any sort of a lasting impact. But at the time they liked it, I guess. Enough to reward it over Tom Jones and uh, L-Shaped Room and uh, Sporting Life and a bunch of other movies that in one way or another, have held up more so. Oh, Okay. Uh, at the BAFTA awards, she wins Best British Actress, even though she is not British. She's French American. Uh, yeah. Because the movie's British, I guess it counts. I
3: don't.
0: Do know. you know
2: who presented her the award? I do not.
3: It was Prince Philip. Oh apparently. wow! Wow. Yeah, I guess he went to the uh, the uh, the BAFTAs that year. Yeah, um, I know he had a thing for ballerinas, so that could be it. Maybe that's why he went. But um, yeah, it's interesting with the well, the Globes thing. This is a slight tangent, but when I was reading my Inside Oscar book on this period, Hedda Hopper, we all you know Hedda Hopper, right?
2: Yes. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. And the more you read about her, the more you're like, wow, this woman was a serpent. She was horrible. Um, but or maybe she was just all doing it for show. But um. She was saying that when Tom Jones was sort of gaining traction in um, the Oscar race, that she really tried to launch an anti kind of Tom Jones, anti British campaign against it. And she was like, why are they nominating these? English films, like the English, have their own version of the Oscars. This should be for American cinema. Um, why she, and that's why she really triumphed, Lilies of the Field, and sydney Poitier, apparently. Um, although I think Universal Goodwill first well, not Universal, but oh, yeah. certainly a lot of people in Hollywood were like, no, 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 yeah, yeah, this is a good film. He should definitely win. Like Paul Newman didn't attend the Oscars because he was like, I don't even want a, to have a chance of winning this. I want him to win it. Um, So yeah, it's interesting that the Globes situate them there because I think something that I never really realized was that there was an anti, or there was an idea that say Globes and Oscars were for American films. I'd never really thought of it like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, there even to the point that like there was a huge uh, backlash when Hamlet won Best Picture, like that was the whole thing. I think weirdly, I, I can't remember if it's about this movie. I remember I talked about this for something on a previous episode but there was one uh, note that I took where uh, 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 Hedda Hopper had commented like she had rung the bell for someone to be like oh I'm going to campaign hard for this someone because she made me like her even though she's British and I'm pretty sure it was Margaret Rutherford yeah I I think it was yeah and i think another thing she said
3: that was funny was like oh you know tom jones should win the british hardly know. i'm not saying they don't know how to make a good
2: film but they've only made a few and it was only after the war and it was like "Mm, you know okay weird weird head hopper uh for more on her go listen to my episode on trumbo where the aforementioned helen mirren plays head hopper it all comes back it all circles it all comes back um yeah yeah i don't know uh also at the BAFTAs though it's nominated for Best British Film, which it loses mm-hmm. to Lawrence of Arabia. That makes sense. Yeah, and then they were also... sort of different Oscar years, but same. Oh, yeah. At BAFTA, yeah, same year at BAFTA because they're both mm. 62. And then also, it is one of I believe I wrote down 18 nominees for a uh, Best Film from any source, which is their Best Picture nominee. Uh, oh. uh, winner there is also Lawrence of Arabia, but. Mm-hmm. Let's see what else is on here. Uh, you get like Jules and Jim and Billy Budd and Last Year at Marian and mm. Lola and The Manchurian Candidate and The Miracle Worker and Through a Glass Darkly and West Side Story and a bunch of other movies. Yeah, they had a very large best picture field. Uh, I can't really
3: fault any of those films either.
2: Yeah, well, because I, I mentioned yeah. the ones. You are, mentioned the good ones. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's others here that I, I'm sure are probably good maybe, but I've never heard of them, like A Kind of Loving, or Only Two Can Play, or The Elusive Corporal, or The Long Absence, or Ugh. Thou Shalt Not Kill. These are titles. Very
3: generic titles. I know yeah. A Kind of Loving is another kind of kitchen sink British New Wave with Alan Bates, but That's yeah, the other ones I don't know. Anyway, yeah. anyway well, uh, yeah, did it get any other uh, awards? Yeah, it got, it
2: got a couple. Uh, it makes the National Board of Reviews Top 10 Films of the Year list. Uh, which uh, that's not nothing, especially in this time when that's kind of like probably a better uh, precursor to look at in this era even than like Globes or BAFTAs because that's when they're doing weird things, but NBR is like really tuned in. Uh, I I feel like I've found going back to some of these uh, 60s and 50s movies that I've covered at the uh, New York Film Critics Circle, she gets, uh, she's number two in lead actress to Patricia Neal and mm-hmm. something that IMDb noted is that uh, she was number two and nobody was number three because they were literally the only two actresses that got any votes. Oh, wow. That is interesting. Not a single person got one other vote in, in terms of Best Actress 1963. It was just the two of them out of the entire New York Critics Circle. Because uh,
3: I think, I don't know if the rules used to work, but I know that current people who are in New York's Critics Circle group say that you have to submit so you like i don't know if you'll sit in a big room or anything and you go like you know oh you know Stephen yo for burning or whatever like you know that's how they do it so maybe it was just two people like oh patricia neal and then someone was like oh but what about leslie karen and then no one it was just a debate between it those could two be.
2: yeah and um, no
3: one was willing to put their hand up and say Shirley McLean. yeah i
2: mean i don't know, I don't know. It, it says at least according to that, that there was like a leading actor the winner was albert finney for tom jones runner-up was poitier for lilies of the field and then third place was a tie between paul newman and richard harris so like much more debate going on mm. in a lead actor but it says here quote not awarded only two actresses received any votes in terms of oh. third
3: they uh, made a note of it okay right yeah that's a, just that, the that, that maybe shows us how the oscar race or if you could see the numbers might reflect
2: that. Yeah, I would imagine she's probably second. Like I said, she wins the Globe and BAFTA and also that. Yeah. And then uh, at the uh, Laurel Awards, she comes in third place after Patricia Neal and Natalie Wood.
0: Uh, mm, and that
2: okay. is everything in terms of uh, precursors. Uh, these early episodes, these uh, 60s and earlier, usually it's uh, it's you know the high ceiling of maybe five different things to talk about in, in terms of this. This is not like a, a, a what did I do? Like Mona Lisa, I had a bunch to talk about when I talked about mm-hmm. the different awards, because Hoskins won basically everything. everything. Yeah. yeah, Everything except National Board and the Oscar. Uh, yeah. But there was like so much to talk about with that. But with this, no, it's just these five groups, but they're like the big five, basically, or at least uh, Globes, BAFTA, National Board, and New York. Those are among the uh, the only ones that there are at this point, and then whatever the Laurel Awards are, there's something to note.
3: Yeah, and something that um, was mirrored a few years later in terms of Leslie Caron uh, succeeding at Globes and BAFTA, at least, is um, Edith Evans,
2: right? Yeah, and she also won, I think, New York and National... I think she won... I think she did win everything. Is wow. that, Is that she won every pre- precursor there was to win, and then Hepburn ended up winning that uh, uh, for... Guess who's coming to dinner?
3: Yeah, which sometimes I think I don't know whether it's just because Oscar history is written and it's what I've learned and loved, but sometimes you're like, I actually can. I don't. I can't imagine a world where Edith Evans wins. Yeah, but it was probably extremely close. Yeah. Again, a- I know we always fantasize. Like, I, if you could see the the numbers from one year, what would it be? I always. Well, no, I was about to say the tie. The, the year I want the closest high you know I'd want to see or the biggest gulf and I think you and Sam mentioned imagine seeing the year where there's no votes for someone I don't know if that's ever happened in acting but I'd almost say and I think we'll get onto this in a second it could be in 1963 for some of those best supporting actor or actress ones where I'm like how was that nominated
2: I mean who was voting for that it would also have to be a case where whoever it is doesn't vote for themselves I feel like that's probably something to note is that it has to be a year where like you're so uh i don't know everyone everyone has friends in the industry like there probably aren't if, if there are any it's probably very few i would yeah. but i would be curious to see uh yeah do do we want to talk about this uh the, who actually does end up winning in the other nominees that we have here because yeah, let's do it. based on that it would seem like Leslie Cron would be the front runner uh mm-hmm. because she wins the globe she wins the bafta and yet it's not just that she ends up losing. like She was never really expected to win because Patricia Neal in HUD, yeah. in a supporting role, was basically the, uh, the far and away frontrunner in this field, which is uh, always a little bit perplexing. to think Yeah. About.
3: It's the nice side of category fraud, I think, because, I mean, context to what we're going to go on to talk about, I must hold my hands up and say, I love HUD, Oh, her I, is think, great. Her is great. I mean genuinely love it and I think that's another one I saw with my nana for the first time and we both went because oh, she I again I don't think she'll mind me saying has a huge crush on Paul Newman like she used to have a poster oh, yeah. of him up without his top on. you know you get it you get it it's, it's understandable and he is yeah. looking good in that although he is horrible in that um, oh, yeah. morally still great to look at um, <laughs> and I remember watching that and thinking Patricia Neal is great and when you hear she won an Oscar I'm like that's fine I'm fine with that Um, But you are right. It is a supporting role. And yet she was never, well, she was put in supporting for Globes, but I think there's a certain level of um, the actor having a say in where they're campaigned, but also the studio. I mean, Universe was it Universal this year? Put every single actor who was in Cleopatra in lead?
2: Yeah, as a clerical error. And that's why the next year they changed it. That's why they changed it, that you can vote. Because Roddy McDowell, was getting such high praise for his role in Cleopatra, mm. but uh, they, they, like, were unable to vote for him in supporting because they had, the studio had submitted him in lead. And it was because of the outrage for that that they changed the rules for the next year to be like, even if the studio puts you one place, they can still vote for you in another. And that's why Patricia Neal is in lead here. Like, she didn't get votes in supporting because she couldn't, because they had placed her in lead. So, uh... That's why she ends up showing up here without really any pushback against that. Yeah. And I
3: suppose I feel like the only, well, there's probably lots of instances of this kind of, well, why did she win when she was a sporting actor? I feel like the same thing happens for Kate
2: Winslet in The Reader. Am I wrong? Where people go, that's supporting? That's a whole thing because she also had um, a Revolutionary Road that year. And mm. so the studio putting her in supporting most of those places was mostly just to, uh, so that they wouldn't be conflicting against her revolutionary road campaign. Right, and then okay. the voters changed their mind and were like, no, she's lead in that. And that's why they yeah. voted for her there. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's a good performance from her. All, all that aside, all of the, she's not, she's basically not in the second half of the movie, uh, even with all that being said, she's still really good in the parts where she is in the movie. I think it's a, it's a very strong performance from every, like everyone's good in that. Paul Newman is good. Melvin Douglas is really good. Brandon mm-hmm. Wilde is really good. It's yeah. A, it's a great movie. It is
3: fantastic. And it is a kitchen sink. I mean, she does actually spend a lot of time at a kitchen sink. Not that that qualifies something to be a kitchen sink drama, but it is like, this isn't just a, this isn't a Western. It's, a, a neo-western and it's it's neo-realistic western because it's deciding to show um, the cowboy as like this amoral protagonist who everyone was drawn to because it was Paul Newman and he played it very well and it became his sort of small archetype because he goes on to do Cool Hand Luke as well but it's it's dealing with like their branch failing and like actual economic issues and um sexual assault and it's it's and looking at the autonomy of uh the female character it yeah it's it's doing a lot of the things the l-shaped broom is doing as well and funnily enough i suppose if patricia neal is the lead of that hypothetically tom bell is the lead of l-shaped broom yeah by that same logic
2: i I feel like if they had tried to mount a campaign for him, they probably would have put him in lead rather than in support yeah. for this movie. Uh, he wouldn't have had a shot, like at all, because this is a incredibly I don't know, packed lead actor field. But yeah. uh, I don't know. I feel like they probably still would have tried it for him, even though he's not really a name, even by British standards at this point. He's still sort of a character actor, but like, yeah, just by virtue of what his his role is, I feel like they would have tried that. Yeah,
3: I think often the Oscars or awards bodies, but we'll go with the Oscars uh, because they are the the sort of main example. They like to have archetypes in their five slots. And you so often have it where you've got the one slot for the foreign language performance, you know, and that will go to Marion Cotillard or Marcello Mastroianni or Sophia Loren. But it's rare that you'd have two of those in the same year. And I have a feeling that in the early years of us, Os- or, or in the sixties, with the acting categories, sometimes it was like we'll have one gritty British performance th- of this year, and that went to um, Richard Harris. Yeah. So no chance, yeah. Tom. about.
2: Yeah. And uh, let's talk about this supporting life while we're on it, in which uh, yeah. Rachel Roberts gets nominated, also for not a not a leading performance. Uh, she's very much supporting in that. There's also. Much like in L-Shaped Room, there's, it is a, a point of plot that she has gone from the movie for a while, that she and uh, Richard Harris's character have this sort of split that ends up with her, spoiler alert, uh, having a heart attack or something? She has some sort of, you know, physical attack as a result of the, the trauma that he sort of brings up when he talks about her dead husband and sort of pushes against that. And it ends up killing her, but uh, I, I thought she was really strong in that movie. I thought for is like again a very good supporting role, but I understand why they would place it in lead just in terms of you know their relationship is at the center of that movie uh, mm-hmm. as much as his career is, and so uh, it's it's fraud that works to her benefit. And I mean, both she and Patricia Neal are leagues above anyone in the actual supporting actress category. So maybe yes. they maybe they could have made some room for one or both of them there, and it would have been better than anything we got. Mm-hmm. But I think she's really strong, uh, and this this is what I was saying earlier when we were talking about uh, Richard Attenborough showing up as as a young person and being like, "Oh hey, Jurassic Park." Yeah. The, the entire time I was watching this movie, I was just physically incapable of. Uh, Of conceiving of Richard Harris as a young man, just because everything I know of him, like uh, obviously Harry Potter, but also like his little role in Unforgiven and Mm -hmm. Field, future episode on this show, I'll eventually be talking about the field, but just like everything that I know about Richard Harris as an actor, gladiator as well, I Mm -hmm. know of him as an old man. So to see him as a young person, my brain just couldn't, you know, make the connection that this is that same guy. It's the same thing with like seeing seeing like judy dench in her early yeah and she always looked old i think but you can always see you're like oh that's that's
3: that's very odd and the thing with richard harris is he aged really quickly because he was an alcoholic so and also the field is fantastic that is a great film um so you will enjoy that i think but yeah richard harris he was touted as the sort of new brando, the British brando. Oh, I thought and that I a lot. That. I thought yeah. that
2: a lot watching this sporting life. Like, man, this he feels like he's doing Stanley Kowalski almost. Yeah. Uh, man, I. this feels like maybe weird to say because as much as I love Paul Newman and Hud and as much as like Sidney Poitier's win is incredibly groundbreaking – I think I maybe would have voted for Richard Harris. I was really, okay. really taken by that performance and just everything that he is able to do with that character. And like, I haven't seen Cleopatra, but I doubt I would vote for Rex Harrison. Uh, yeah. For many reasons. One doesn't seem like that's a performance I would be into. Two don't like Rex Harrison in general. So mm-hmm. he's Married out. to Rachel Roberts. Oh yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah that's the whole thing coming up this, uh, That that shows up in this year. Forgot about that.
3: Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, Rex Harrison and Cleopatra, that is a a notorious film that's very long. And I think what I knew of it as an entity before I knew about its Oscar, you know, nominations. And then when I saw that I had best no best lead actor for someone that wasn't Richard Burton, I was confused. (laughs) And yeah, I can't remember much of him. I mean, he's he's doing his sort of you know his British uh, thing, yeah, his and then thing. he goes on to win an Oscar the next year. So you know you can't, but I, you could quite easily replace that with someone else. I do have someone in mind who I'd rather nominate.
2: I mean, Marcello Not, Mastroianni for Eight and a Half would oh, have been great.
3: Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing. He gets nominated the year before for um, marriage. is it Marriage? What one of Divorce. those? Divorce Italian yeah. style. One of the Italian styles. Yeah. Which is a film where like, he's, of all the Mastroianni nominations or films to nominate him for, he's so muted in it. He's And it's good, but it's like, you've got my Vita and you've got eight and a half right there. And he's so good in both of those. He's so iconic. Yeah. But yeah. I'd, I would, because I'm a bit of a, a fanboy for this person, give a nomination this year in 63, I think to Charade, because Charade doesn't really get it any major nominations but it is delightful and Cary Grant that's like his last great film so yeah maybe I'd throw him a because he only got two Oscar nominations in his life yeah I think so two or three I know I'm talking about one of them uh Penny Penny Sarah made yeah Yeah. and then Number the Lonely Heart won a best supporting actress for Ethel Barrymore I think
2: that sounds right yeah, right. yeah I think
3: so yeah that's not a loan. otherwise it would be a lone one because it's a uh, an odd film but um per- the person I would give it to this year if I could choose best actor I mean Sydney Partway. Anyway, I d- I do not begrudge that he won and I would actually give him the win but I think the best performance
2: and I wish this could have won is Paul Newman yeah
3: because I think that's the best performance he ever gave and he was nominated nine or ten times
2: yeah he is incredibly strong in that movie and so yeah. is Poitier. and like I don't even hate Tom Jones I think it's it's like it's not awful it's not great but like I don't know Finney's not bad in it. it's just he's weird... like he's the best part of it
3: isn't he he's like the yeah, charming probably. cheeky
2: yeah. lead
3: I can't yeah. really remember it at all when I was reading about this and all the stuff about Tom Jones and just the free you know supporting actress nominees you're like I can't, I can't even remember I can't differentiate the free supporting actresses oh,
2: at all yeah, in my head no no uh and that's for like and like i vaguely remember saying this when i did my vip's episode but like you, like you i also forget a lot of that movie i think the one that i ended up liking the most out of that supporting actress cast wasn't even nominated but also i couldn't tell you who that even was so like right i don't know weird weird year go listen to my vip's episode that i did that was a lot of fun uh sort of Having a bit of a breakdown over this year in that supporting mm-hmm. actress race just because it's so weird and pretty bad. That movie oh man, that movie is uh, yeah, uh, borderline unwatchable. Uh, not this one though, this one's good. Uh, yeah. I, I like I said, I haven't seen Irma LaDuce. Do you want to speak on that a little?
3: Yeah, it's it's I, I think it is one of the so you have um, Billy Wilder making back-to-back some like it hot in the apartment I, I arguably a pinnacle of his career wins you know best picture best director for the apartment then Herme Ledoux comes three years later he makes about one one film in between i think uh, one two three which is really good um yeah it's it's it plays a lot on this dynamic between lemon and mclean that they built in the apartment but it's a, a lot more comical without the tragedy of of apartment um essentially she's a well there's there's a some kind of byline in this best actress field between women who get pregnant before they're married and don't have a partner and ermee leduce is about a prostitute huh. not that there's not that there's a direct line between those two but there's a, certainly a moral judgment being made about these female characters you know to sit to to make the lead of your film a woman who's having a child out of wedlock, or who is a sex worker is something that is interesting for the 60s. Not that they're the same yeah. thing. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be misconstrued there. But um, she's shown as a very sympathetic and frivolous character in Emile LaDuce. And then Jack Lemmon falls in love with her and then to stop her from ever sleeping with another man, he ends up pretending to be a different man who's a rich English gentleman who talks a bit like this and all that sort of thing. And he has a monocle. Yeah. And so he always comes to her and then pays her a load of money so that she doesn't have to sleep with anyone else, stays with him for the night. And then he, for the rest of the week, goes away and works nights so he can earn the money to give to her. And he ends up neglecting their relationship because he's away working all the time to pretend. It's a really odd film, but That's it's... Weird. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's got some nice little flares, but it is very ill-founded, I think. Um, Yeah she's incredible in it though and I love Shirley MacLaine and I think of her five nominations apart from the turning point I wouldn't really begrudge her winning in any of her years you know regardless of the competition because she is just a fantastic actress you probably should have been nominated more than five times but oh yeah yeah you know when she does win I'm like I think me and Sam were saying that you know he I think that year would have given it to someone else but I was saying that you, that is a career Oscar that I love, that you can tell it really means a lot to her when she wins.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great speech that she gives. That's a yeah iconic speech. Oh, it's, yeah, it's great. So I think in this, I don't think she ever really stood a chance. Did
3: she win the Globe for comedy? I, can I imagine. think she did, yeah. 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 And she is really good. But I think it's one of those films that doesn't age well. And, yeah, I think that's all, all to say about that.
2: yeah. And then uh, this last one here, a movie we've uh, we keep on referencing, "A Love with a Proper Stranger." Natalie yeah. Wood nominated for this as, as her second, third, third. Nom- third, third. I always, last. I always forget that she actually got nominated for Rebel Without a Cause." That one always yeah. slips my mind. Uh, but yeah, her third nomination. She's incredibly strong in that one as well. Uh, it's a very like all of the things that Leslie Caron is doing subtly in *L Shape Room*, she's kind of elevating that, and but like in ways that definitely work and fit the character. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's a movie that feels kind of weird to watch as someone who's uh, uh, comes from a partial Italian American background, and just the ways in which that family portrays or that movie portrays its Italian American families feels very weird. Uh, And like, not in a outwardly bad way. It's just, oh, these are like very stereotypical Italian-American, you know, oh, the mom and uh, the the dad and the brother and the way that all these people are uh, acting. It feels very, a bit over the top. Um, Yeah. But no, I I think Natalie Wood is very good in that movie. I think Steve McQueen is not bad. Uh, it's Mm. it's It's a sort of an under, like the movie doesn't serve him very well. No. Uh, by design like it has to it, it has to sort of focus more on her for it to work but yeah you know, i think i think she's good in it i think she has a, a couple moments of uh emotionality is not a word mm-hmm. but it's the word i'm gonna no use. no
3: i think i yeah. think it is because i use oh. it all the time in my reviews oh. so I hope
0: oh
2: well, well then uh th- there's a lot of emotion that comes out from her uh towards him towards the other guy that she kind of ends up with, or maybe almost does, the clumsy one that uh, wants to marry her or something, that I think maybe, no, because Steve McQueen's the father with the baby. It's the other way around from this, from L-shaped room, where yeah. the guy, the, I don't know, th- there's, there's stuff going on there. Um, well, it's, it's funny that not only do they, um, L-shaped
3: room and Love with the Proper Stranger mirror each other's plots, but they're both starring actresses who were known for sort of being young sort of innocent child actors slash teen actors you know because of course um natalie wood was in um you know miracle on 47th street then rebel without cause and then she had splendor in the grass and west side story on the same year but at the same yeah. time well, those
2: are both her as a oh sorry go on oh no just uh, you're skipping over her uh, magnificent turn in previous episode the star the Betty Davis vehicle, The Star, which oh. I had up until, like, I've talked about that movie on this show, and up until recently, had completely blocked out th- that Natalie Wood is the daughter in that movie, or the stepdaughter, or something. I know she's in it. I have forgotten so much of that movie. Yeah, uh, so but, have I. Yeah, that Good memory, was, then, that you've oh, remembered it. Only because I looked it up, like, a couple weeks ago, and had been completely blindsided by the fact that, oh, I forgot that I've talked about a Natalie Wood movie already. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, because yeah, no, um... yeah, you're you're right. But like that, that is kind of her image up until this point. She's also working against that in this movie, much in the same way that Leslie Caron is in, in L Shape Room*, and I feel like that maybe kind of cancels out both of their chances at winning anything here because they're similar subject matters, mm-hmm. uh, right to the point where both movies have you know a lot of talk about maybe getting an abortion, although neither Mm -hmm. movie says the word abortion Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah, because they can't because obviously there's there's reasons why a movie at this time can't use the word abortion in dialogue but they both talk about having to go make an appointment with a doctor and talking about do you want to keep the baby but they don't say what the alternative to keeping the baby is but it's Mm -hmm. heavily implied like to the point that Natalie Wood almost goes through with it like she shows up at this apartment like the seedy apartment room where she's going to strip down and lie down on this mat and they're going to do the procedure there but uh they end up not going through with it for one reason or another but like yeah both of those movies they uh it's interesting that they're in the same year in the same acting race uh as sort of a a parallel two different ways to tell a similar story i guess
3: yeah it's kind of like the classic Version of Olympus
2: has fallen and White House Down. It's, you know, <laughs> it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. It's exactly yeah. the same. That is, that is the statement. We're, that is the thesis of this episode: is that the L-shaped room is exactly the same as White House Down or, or Olympus? Olympus or, or, yeah, wow. whichever one you want to choose. Yeah. yeah it's whichever it's one she's more movie. like, gerald Butler. Yeah. It's the same movie. It's yeah. the same movie. Uh, I think we can. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a a good parallel. I love it. I love it. Um, Yeah, no, you're you're right. It is kind of in a similar way to like two movies tackling the same subject, you know, hot hot button issue uh, subject matter of like, well, we're at a time in uh, in American and British culture where abortion is becoming a a topic that we're talking about openly and not Mm -hmm. just, you know, a hush-hush sort of thing that nobody ever talks about but like they're they're it's making waves to normalize it and have discussions and uh no it, it's an interesting thing that both of these movies are doing like uh, i think i read that abortion wouldn't even become legal in the uk until 1967 so like
3: yeah so the yeah. abortion act was uh 1967 and then it passed in 68 so it was 6 years after the film came out that people could get an abortion Legally, yeah, and it was, le- of course, the other element which is touched upon early in the film to go way back when she goes to see the horrible doctor is that it was an there's a huge economic barrier to getting an abortion, which is why so many people like in Love with the Proper Stranger she goes to get it in an unsafer way because the cheaper ones were the ones that more women could access because if you went to those doctors who couldn't legally do it um, they would charge a very high price even though it was illegal um, to you know do it quote unquote safer or whatever but yeah yeah the fact that there's um, you know that she is economically um, she, she is not supported by anyone that she has to support herself in the film it's reflected in that she can't get rid of the child because an abortion would cost like a ridiculous amount. And it was, it was, yeah, later that decade that then women could access that treatment on the NHS if they needed to.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it it also makes watching these movies now, like currently like right now, all the more, uh, you know, very in your face dramatic of like, Oh, this is not an issue that, like, this is still an issue that people are facing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, watching it now in 2022, there's a, you know, it's heavy. It's heavy to yeah. to see people struggling in the same way that people are probably still struggling, not probably, definitely still struggling now uh, with uh, everything happening with the Supreme Court right now. So, mm. you know that that was a that that just sort of added an extra layer to my watching of these two movies. It was something else that was you know, always in the back of my mind of like, yeah, these, these issues have not been fixed. Mm-hmm. On that light note, <laughs> uh, uh, and oh, what else do we want to talk about with this year? Um, Ooh, well, about, oh, no, sorry, go ahead.
3: No, 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 what were you going to say?
2: Uh, n- nothing really. Go oh, ahead.
3: okay, I was going to say, shall we suggest, or is this jumping the gun? who would we have nominated if anyone from this film that didn't get a nomination? Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. We can talk about some of these other acting races. Uh, probably not lead actor. Just because, like we said, we, we also already kind of t- touched on that field. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we can talk about supporting actor. I've only seen two of these movies, but uh, if you want to talk to this field a little bit, I guess. Yeah, it's an odd one in that Um, I think when you look at the,
3: when you often want to say, watch all the nominated films in history, if you do it by year, sometimes it's very easy because all the performances were in, you know, best picture nominees or lots of, whereas in 63, the best, especially the best supporting actor, this one stands out as like, so so Melvin Douglas wins for HUD, but then you have Nick Adams nominated for Twilight of Honor. Um, Bobby Darren, the mainly known for singing "Beyond the Sea," uh, nominated yeah. for a film called Captain Newman, M.D. And then you have Hugh Griffith, um, notorious sex pest in real life. Um, he was fired from a film for refusing to ever wear clothes. That's oh, wild. Right. Yeah, um, but he won an Oscar, and apparently he was he was quite close to winning another one for this. But anyway, he was nominated for Tom Jones, and then the director John Huston was nominated for a supporting role in the Cardinal. So it's a weird year where there's two performances from films you've never heard of one from the best picture winner that was probably not going to win because he just won. And then one of the most famous directors of the 20th century getting an acting nomination.
2: Yeah. It feels like looking at this lineup of movies, it is kind of strange that I'm not talking about any of these on this show. Uh, Wait, not even Twilight of Honor? No, Twilight of Honor got a nomination for, let's see what the other one was for. Is it screenplay? Uh, no. Let's see, on Wikipedia, uh, Art Direction, Black and White. Oh, it's if I remember rightly, it's
3: a courtroom slash prison film. Probably so. Nick Adams plays, uh, who's really good in, I think, Splendour in the Grass or something like that, He's good in other films, but this is a, a performance where I was like, "It's a lot, you know." He's really going for it, and I think he he had a um. Oh, what was the name of the best supporting actor nominee from *The Alamo*? Do you uh, remember him? Uh, Chill Wills. Chill Wills, that's it. My nickname. Um, he <laughs> um did like a lot of self campaigning, and he brought out like oh, yeah, ads and like. Right. The and like Times Magazine, like Chill Wills gives the best, you know, to the point where like John Wayne was like, You've gotten too far, and we don't want you to come to the Oscars, something like that. I love it. Like, you've really overdone it here, mate. But, um, yes, Nick Adams just a lot of self campaigning. I think that that makes up for that. Bobby Darren was a known entity as a singer, married to Sandra D. At the whole, yeah, he he was quite young. He's quite good in it. It's a film, I think, set in a um uh like a an institution and i think gregory peck is maybe the doctor something something that like that Sounds
2: right. Yeah. That's yeah. And that got a uh, screenplay and sound nominations so uh, Yeah. And then the cardinal six time nominee out of is the cardinal. Right? Have you that's, seen... a, that's a premature I Yeah, yeah. I've not seen the cardinal. I remember
3: it actually being pretty good. And i can't remember whether it was good or interesting i mean they could be the (laughs) same thing but um, apparently otto preminger was one of those like you know directors who would really exact a horrible regiment on his you know crew to get the best results and the lead of um, the cardinal i remember him being stunning like whoever plays the main guy in the cardinal is one of the most gorgeous men i've ever seen on screen And you watch and you're like, why don't I know this guy? Like, he must have been in so many films afterwards. But Otto Preminger basically just drove him to like never work again by being so horrible to him throughout the whole thing. Um, Yeah, but it's a good, I think it's quite a good film.
2: Yeah, I'm looking at his Wikipedia now under the uh, acting career uh, section. It has sections for Broadway, early appearances, Paramount, a movie called Texas John Slaughter, 20th Century Fox, and then a whole subheader just for Otto Preminger. (laughs)
3: yeah yeah i'm not surprised and i think john houston it's interesting looking at the inside oscar it's like that was almost like a joke it was seen as a joke that he got the nomination they were like haha he can act and i think he was like oh you know my father's the only actor in the family or whatever um but he is incredible in chinatown like i would probably give him the win that year for who who, oh no i suppose that's the robert de niro win for godfather 2 but you know he's incredible in that
2: he really is. That's a that's a yeah. That's a performance that I'm always kind of surprised didn't get. Like I always have to correct myself when I think about the one acting nomination that he got, that it was for The Cardinal and not Chinatown. Like I always think it's you know, obviously he got nominated for Chinatown. Nope, The Cardinal. Something you've yeah. probably never heard of. Probably that's never a, heard. A Golden Globe Best Picture winner for drama, The Cardinal. Right. One of like. I think there's like three movies ever that won that and didn't go on to a best picture nomination at the Oscars. It's like that and East of Eden and Spartacus. I want to say is the other one. Okay, it's weird that Spartacus didn't get an it Oscar is, nomination, especially for best the year picture. after Ben Hur. Although maybe that has something to to do with it—that it's yeah the year after Ben Hur. Yeah, it's kinda of like okay, and this is not a dumb comparison like earlier. We're silly on. <laughs>
3: but like um, full metal jacket not getting much after Platoon. That's one yeah. where I used to be like, how how?
2: Because it's like the one I mean, of the best it, It's another it's a very apt comparison because that's another Kubrick. Oh yeah. I did yeah. that by accident. Yeah. yeah. Um Yeah, no, I, I haven't seen I've only seen in the supporting actress or supporting actor feel, I've only seen HUD and Tom Jones. Seems like you have high praise for some of these others, though. I, w- I would be interested in checking some of them out. It just feels weird that none of them are on my list, that the only two this year that I'm talking about are this movie, L-Shaped Room, and uh, the VIPs. So uh, after this is this is a wrap on 1963 for me. Oh, goodbye. I mean, 1963, Doctor Who started, Kennedy yeah. was assassinated. It was a big year, you know. Yeah, the two big things. The two big yeah. things from 1963. Um also, uh, speaking of Doctor Who, apparently uh, William Hartnell's role in *This Sporting Life* is what uh, got the attention of the people that were producing Doctor Who, and that's how he got the role. Is his yeah. uh, small role in that one, which that was that was an interesting thing to read uh, in uh, just in in reading more on that movie, which is also I don't remember if we I think I probably said this, but that's another like big uh, example of a kitchen sink drama. Like that's one of the ones that. Is cited most often as like an early sort of uh uh example of what that genre could be i guess Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't really know where i was going with that but you
3: know oh no no no, absolutely i think it's worth mentioning actually that kitchen sink and british new wave tended to show up every year in which it was you know because like 1959 i'd say is like the first big year of the kitchen sink drama i mean you could probably date it to 57 or I'll tell you in two years once i finish my MA. But Broom yeah. at the Top is a big example. And that does, I mean, that gets an Oscar nomination in three out of the four acting categories.
2: I want to say so, yeah. Something like that. Because Hermione
3: badly gets a nomination for like the sh- one of the shortest appearances in film. Yeah. Um, she's very good in it though. Um, and yeah, and then 1960, you have The Entertainer that gets Laurence Olivier. That's 16- another movie I'll
2: be doing eventually on this show oh
3: that's john osborne who wrote tom jones who probably won an oscar for tom jones probably so yeah yeah um yeah and then i think the years afterwards they kind of turn a bit more away from kitchen sink you have things like the whisperer but you have more things that are successful like darling which are new wave but they're more french inspired they're a bit more swing in 60s and yeah. sexual revolution and not you know dow dower or sadder
2: yeah. An and like in Darling, she's a little bit more like middle, upper middle class. Yeah. Especially compared to like the characters in this movie or, uh, 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 Sporting Life or some of these mm-hmm. other movies that are within this genre. Like she's definitely a, a bit more, you know, she has a, a nice, uh, luxurious career as a model. She is dating these upper class men. She has more of a, uh, a a financial social net that she can fall back on that uh, definitely feels like it sets that movie apart from some of these others in here. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and you have films like The Servant, which also has um, Dirk Bogard, you know, which does show, say, the dynamic between upper and lower class, but it's not like the L-shaped room and all this this sporting life. In fully showcasing... The hardship of working class people in England, which hadn't been done in the way that it had until the new wave. That's why it's so crucial and why I'm so drawn to it. And I think it's because after the war had ended and in that post-war period, it had been incredibly hard for people across the world um, and in the UK. But then that post-war period, things started to get better for about 20 years. I think as things were getting better, people were more prepared to go and watch films about realistic topics because it wasn't so close to home people were still living you know in the situations that um that you know Jane is in L-shaped room but people had the appetite for honesty which I think they didn't want to escape they didn't want to go and watch *Paul and Pressburger or David Lean's you know like Dick, Dickensian adaptations they wanted to go and see something that was gritty and real and angry and yeah I think it became that that Decade where people woke up and were willing to uh, think about things more and push boundaries because they had the security to do so.
2: Yeah, yeah, very much following in the sort of like same thing with America in like the mid '50s, where you have Brando and James Dean and Paul Newman sort of yeah making those same sort of waves in terms of gritty realism in their movies as well, sort of pushing. uh, Yeah, a, a big time for people to be uh you know moving away from the studio system of mm-hmm. uh big spectacle rather than uh gritty emotional stories uh, across the globe like so often we talk about that happening in america and and with american film but like you're you're right it it is just as fascinating to look at how the those same tendencies blossomed in the late 50s early 60s in British film and I do want to check out a lot like Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner has always fascinated like I, I haven't seen that yet but just like the, the that title kind of like the L-shaped room mm. it sort of draws me in as like oh what is this movie with this very interesting title or like I've seen Kez but it's been a long time since I've seen that one and that's one that I want to revisit uh, yeah there's a lot of movies on this, on this Wikipedia list of kitchen sink realism uh, that I want to check out and have a more you know, thorough appreciation of this movement because it seems really fascinating. Yeah, I think there's something oddly, even though, as we said at the top,
3: this isn't exactly like a happy, it, isn't, it doesn't seem like a happy film, but to me it is. And I think a lot of films from this era are on paper incredibly depressing. And in reality, I find them to be incredibly uplifting quite a lot of the time because it's usually about very very down-to-earth people and I think that can be incredibly refreshing uh, when you're watching films that do have those that fantastical escapist drive sometimes like this year is epitomized I'd say by Cleopatra that everyone stood in the shadow of that behemoth which was a stinker like people saw it but it went like hugely over budget it was a four and a half hour cut to begin with and it's not a good film. That's the thing. Like it didn't make its budget back. It's a notorious bomb. It's, and it was like the, the sign of the times that people were moving on and that a small drama like L-shaped room, not that it made much money, but it is a better film than the film that they poured more money in than any film ever.
2: Yeah. 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 It just goes to show. Sometimes that, sometimes that kind of thing happens. Not much more to it. Just, uh, that's the way it is. That's why we're talking about uh, L-shaped room here and not Cleopatra. And uh, yeah, I'm glad. It. Yeah, I mean, uh, it would have been nice for those to be switched in their sort of uh, reception. I'm not even reception because like this got good reviews and Cleopatra didn't. But like, Oscars certainly went more for Cleopatra. That how many? Okay, I'm gonna make us depressed. How many nominations did Cleopatra get? I know off the top of my head. Nine. Nine, Nine. nominations. Nine not the most of the year no tom jones got 10 10
3: yeah but yeah i think one it might have won the most with four
2: but i could probably let's see yeah and it's loading but let's see what wikipedia has to say to confirm that uh tied they both won four right okay Cleopatra and tom jones both won four uh, oscars so
3: yeah i think what we were originally going to talk about some point what would we have nominated this film for, if any others? Yeah, let's move on to
2: that final segment here now. Okay. So mine, I have to say up
3: the top, and you may join me on this one, but um, right, let me get her name right, please. uh, You know what I'm going to say, but Cicely um, Courtney has made this. I probably just said her name wrong. I'm sorry to her up in heaven, but um, she, oh my goodness. She would have made my best supporting actress, Ballot. I, Yeah, she would have been my winner. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, her and also, I mean, even if we're throwing um, Patricia Neal and Rachel Roberts into supporting, I think she is incredibly, like she holds her own against those two. We talked about this when I did my VIPs episode that like I wouldn't have known who to nominate. Like I think I still ended up saying um, Maggie Smith for the VIPs would make my ballot just because it's such a thin field. Uh, Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would... I would absolutely take her over any of those five nominees that we ended up getting. Uh, I, I would also, oh, no, I'll, I'll let you do yours first before I, I bother with mine. Um, okay, um, I think, I've, so I,
3: I toyed with having Tom Bell in the, also, so I mean, while well, we've been saying Tom Bell, is that the name of the film with Mark Wahlberg that came out last year? I think that's Joe Bell. Joe Bell. Oh, okay, no, yeah, yeah I would. Um Yeah, no, Tom Bell probably wouldn't have made my best actor five because it was really strong that year. I pretty much would line up with the Oscars. I'd probably put Cary Grant in there somewhere and maybe take out Rex Harrison. Yeah. Um. And Marcelo Mas- 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 Mastroviani. I'd yeah. take out probably.
2: Finney? I'd I guess, yeah.
3: I'd take out Finney. I love Finney, but not for that film. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I wish he'd won an Oscar, but not for that.
2: Yeah. We, yeah. There, there's places to reward him elsewhere. Definitely. I'm,
3: I'm a bit astounded from, like, without context of the year, specifically, how he didn't win in 2000 for Erebrokovich.
2: Yeah, that is that is such a strong category. I'm still a yeah. little bit peeved that I don't get to talk about it at any point, uh, just because, oh. because Shadow of the Vampire got a makeup nomination. Oh, okay, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that, that is... That is a category that I think any one of those five would have been a completely deserving winner. I think those mm. are five great performances that would have fit within any of their careers. Uh, but yeah, Finney would have been very deserving there.
3: Yeah, or why he say he didn't get a, a nomination or a push in 2003 for Big Fish. Yeah. Because that's the that year Tim too. Robbins wins. And he could, and like that's a really odd week, I'd say, best supporting actor field where like Alec Baldwin and Ken Watanabe. I mean, Ken Watanabe is a great actor, but yeah. Lost Samurai. We're, okay, I'm, I'm going way off topic now.
2: It happens yeah. all the time.
3: Yeah. Um, okay, so the, I, I think the main other, I, could, I toyed with having Brock Peters in supporting actor because he is fantastic as um, Johnny in this. We spoke about him earlier. Um, And he was quite an important actor for his time, you know, being in To Kill a Mockingbird, Carmen Jones, Porgy and Bess. Yeah. I don't know if he does enough, but out of the ones that were nominated and not knowing 1963 super, super well off the top of my head, I'd probably bring in um, Walter Mattow from Charade because I think he's great in that. But yeah, maybe Brock Peters. Maybe I'd give a nomination for Brock Peters, but I would 100% give an adapted screenplay nomination to Brian Forbes.
2: Yeah, I I agree on all of those. Adapted screenplay would have been a great nomination. Cicely Courtage, like you said, I would put Brock Peters in here. I, I think he cool. he really struck a chord with me. I, I really yeah. uh, appreciated what he was doing, and uh, it you know it's one of those cases of like I, I had I didn't really have much familiarity with him going into this beyond uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and he from the very beginning just like caught my attention and. Every time he wasn't on screen, I wanted him to come back. I was yeah uh, uh, ready for more Johnny. And then, yeah, like, I mean, I would have to look at... Uh, the, uh, okay, what are my favorite movies from this year? Let's look on my letterboxed Because I think this would probably be a good uh, Best Picture nominee, honestly. Uh, uh, or at least it would make my personal... Yeah, I mean, I, like High and Low, 8.5, HUD. And after that, like, that's still two extra spots I could absolutely see myself putting this movie in there uh, as as one of yeah. the best of the year uh, and then uh, other things like I mean this is a, uh, still when they're doing or they have everything split into color and black and white so I could see this getting like a mm. black and white cinematography nomination I think this is a very good looking movie uh, and, and uh, uh, the the cinematographer that we mentioned whose name Douglas Slope Coon Slocum, yep. something like that. Yeah, that would have been a good, uh, another nomination for him. We didn't mention him, and I wouldn't really give this an editing nomination, but do you know who edited this movie? No. Anthony Harvey, uh, the director of The Lion in Winter. Uh was oh. apparently an editor for a while before he started directing. Like, he he edited this he edited Lolita, he edited Doctor Strangelove, he edited The Whisperers, uh, Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Angry Silence, went, which you mentioned earlier, he was on oh, yeah. that as well. And then uh, he went on, he directed uh, Lion in Winter, and a couple other things after that. Uh, but you know, I just thought that was something else interesting that I came across when I was doing my research. But oh, no, I, 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 yeah, I don't know if I would give this an editing nomination, I just wanted to mention that while we were on the topic. Uh, the score for this was done by John Barry, uh, who, oh yeah, who wrote uh, the Bond theme? Yeah, and uh, I don't think I really paid much attention to the score of this movie, but that was just something else to uh, that came up. But yeah, yeah I would I would say picture, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, adapted screenplay, and maybe cinematography. I think that's a good haul for a movie like mm-hmm. this. I think that that would make sense. Uh, yeah, like beyond just what I would personally pick. Like that feels like the right. A a nomination tally for a movie like this yeah absolutely and I
3: think it had strong competition in the actual race and it would in our imagined race you know especially a director like it. Brian Forbes is a fantastic writer but I wouldn't say his presence is particularly felt as a director so yeah I do think he is fantastic yeah absolutely fantastic and that's why this film works I think is because of his words
2: in the mouths of these performers oh exactly uh, uh, couldn't have said it better myself I think that'll do it for this episode. Thank you again for coming on. Ooh, this, is, this is a nice. wonder, yeah, wonderful time, wonderful conversation here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been terrific. And if you ever want me back on, please. Absolutely. Come back. More than welcome. Yeah. More than welcome. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug anywhere people can find you?
3: Um, the only place is Letterboxed. Turns out I did my prep. You can just type in Will Steele and I'll come up. Or
2: you can type in Steele98, which is the username. Right on. <laughs> You can find this show on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms and on Instagram at The Lone Acting Nominees. That'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening.